perspective thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. That works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast, the crossroads where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. I'm your host, Nathan Bartlebaugh, and tonight's episode is a return to the X-Files roundtable, and we have a whole group of people who's, who are about to join us. Someone sent a message today and said, oh, is everyone ready for X-5, which meant X-Files Season 5, which is what we're on, but I thought, you know, we're now the X-5 as well. And in fact, we're we're swapping someone out tonight because they weren't able to join and we're bringing someone else in. Uh, so we'll go ahead and start that in. But yes, tonight we are talking about Season 5. I'm very excited about this. It's arguably my personal favorite season. I don't know that it's the best season, but I think that it is the the zenith of the show at this point. And we'll talk about it. Uh, it is... Uh, we'll discuss shortly here that season five does lead into the movie and we have something kind of fun planned for the movie, but we're not going to cover Exiles fight the future in this episode. We will get its own separate show and we'll talk about that at the end of this. Uh, so let me go ahead and bring in all of our co-hosts for tonight and then we'll go from there. So first let me bring in Karen Wagner. Karen is joining us again. Uh, Karen, I believe you joined us for season three and you were along for season four. And now you're back for season five. How are you tonight? That's right. I am. I'm great. And I'm super excited. We are entering my favorite era of the X-Files. I think um, seasons five through seven probably were like the height of my love for the show back then. Um, I even in, I think it was like 98 or 99, um, I took a trip to LA and I had a friend who worked at the Beverly Hilton and he got us these uh, like rooms by where they hold the Golden Globe Awards. Everybody else was all excited to see, you know, like movie stars and stuff. I just could not wait to see David Duchovny from the X-Files. So um, these are my favorite seasons. I think six might be my favorite, but I loved five. So yeah, I'm super excited. David Duchovny is a movie star. Kind. At the time, he sort of wasn't. I think yeah, he, was he was starting to be. Yeah. I think yeah, he, had he was done getting there. Maybe Eye of God and or, or Playing God. Playing I think God. Maybe Playing God. And then uh, maybe Return to Me was around this time. California. Cal- uh, Californication was oh. a little bit later, right? Or, no, no, no. California. California with a K. Okay. Oh, that's Brown right. Pitt. He was in that movie. That was a little bit earlier in like the early 90s, right? Like, yeah. Was that right before X-Files. I think it was. Somewhere yes. around the same I forgot time. that he was the, yeah. I forgot he was in California. I have not mm-hmm. seen that in years. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I think I'm right there with you. I had a similar experience where five through seven, even if they weren't the best seasons, they were sort of the, they were when I was most involved in watching the show. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so let's go ahead and also bring in uh, Dave Roy from up in Canada. Dave, how are you doing tonight? Hey, everybody. I'm doing great. Excellent, actually. It's uh, so so great to be back talking about the X-Files. Uh, when earlier you mentioned the, the, the message and uh, X5, it threw me off. I thought we were watching X-Men Part 5. <laughs> Is there an X-Men Part 5? I can't even keep track of that. Is there a Part 5? There must be. Probably better not mentioned, but um, <laughs> I'm just—it's a wild guess. So, it might not so have been a good one. To be much better to be talking X Files. Then. Yes, yes, yes. I was thinking we we're the X Five, but if we need to be the XF Five, whatever. But anyway, so Dave, yeah, and Dave is from the Great Fright North podcast. I'll have the links in the show notes for that. Yeah. Thanks for joining Thanks. us, Dave. And oh, no problem. Then we'll go ahead and bring in Vicious Victor Rodriguez. Victor, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm pretty good. Thanks for having me back on the show. I really appreciate it. I love these. And um, yeah, doing pretty good. Yeah, I normally at the top of the show, I would plug some of my own work. But uh, since all I have are submissions to talk about, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what I'm reading. Um, it's a graphic novel by James Tinian the Fourth, and it's called Department of Truth. And uh, it's cool. pretty good. Yeah, it's very appropriate to this. I was uh, X-Files-y, I was going to say. Yeah, sounds like Mulderish. There are agents involved. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good so far. But yeah, I'll report back in the in the show notes when, when you uh, publish this. Very cool. And happy birthday to Victor, who had a birthday last weekend, which is why we didn't do it then. And Ooh, uh, we are recording today. So happy birthday, Victor. And Victor's just coming off the Blade Runner podcast, which we did recently. You can hear that over at uh, Phantom Galaxy, uh, mm. not part of the X-Files, but it was a lot of fun to record. And then finally, so normally we have Tommy Wood with us on the show, and Tommy had to uh, drop out. I don't think he'll be part of this one or the movie when we record it. Uh, he is hoping to join again. So uh, we have someone coming on. I don't want to say in his place because this person's joining, and as far as I'm concerned, you are now we're now the X-Files 6, so or the X-6, whatever. Uh, but I want to bring on Shannon Barnes. Shannon, how are you tonight? Oh my gosh, I'm so good. How are you? <laughs> great, great. Very excited that you're here. Very you. Uh, you've been mentioned several times about how much you've been into the X Files podcast, and and we've been talking about getting you to join, and that this was the perfect time to to bring you in. Yeah, I'm a huge fan girl. Um, it's I I. It's no secret to some people that I I run a lot. Um, well, I, <laughs> I I call it wogging. I walk jog because <laughs> I'm old now, um, and I just put. <laughs> put this on and I literally get lost in my day and I can't turn it off and I become very antisocial. So I love, love these episodes. Um, yeah, I'm excited to be here, you know, hopefully learn a lot, contribute a little. I'm a bit of a novice compared to everybody else, but this will be great. We just open our mouths and let stuff come out. It's easy. Oh, good. It'll be good. It's stopping sometimes. That's my issue. I have uh, nothing to plug because I have nothing <laughs> to uh, share. But I am reading this series called The Dresden Files. By yes, Jesus. yes. Oh, I didn't know where they were books. Yeah, and I cannot stop. I've read them all. I, I think they're. I think I'm on the last book now, and I'm just obsessed. I love yes. it. Oh, and and that's uh, James. Um, 
with the you said his name but i was talking over it i think his name um is jim butcher jim butcher that's it not jim yeah jim butcher i don't know if that's his real name but yeah it's, it's a cool name um <laughs> as far as i'm aware it's his real name i just was like flubbing it for a second so karen uh you you said so they're books so are you only familiar with the tv series I've heard of the TV series. I had no idea it was based on on books. Yeah, I've only series. seen the TV series. Yeah, yeah TV series is awful. Um, like <laughs> I was gonna say it's not like, great. No, the books it's are horrible. great. The books are neo noir horror fantasy, and they are awesome. And if you can get the uh, Karen, you'll like this. If you can get the audio books, James Marsters, who I was supposed to play Harry Dresden uh, on the show, but it didn't it didn't work out. He narrates a lot of the books. The audio really books, they are amazing. Yes, they're great. Oh, I would listen to that. Great it's... series. I think you'll be into it. Any all of you, I think you'll be into it. So and and you too, listeners. <laughs> it needs to be redone because it's it such does. a big series. It does. Yeah, HBO or you know wh- whatever's still standing at the end of the franchise works. Probably Tubi. Tubi get in there so, and make. A... What time period are the books from? Like when were they written? Is what I mean. They're still are being published. Written. Yeah, like the '90s through now, I think, or maybe the 2000s. Like they're yeah. relatively recent. Yeah, because that that show is from a that's, that's at least twenty years ago, isn't it? Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah but it was like two thousand. Oh well, yeah, just shy of it, maybe it was like two thousand five or something like that, maybe when it came on. Okay, somewhere in there, but um, it, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it's older than I thought. And I'd like to admit it is. Um, <laughs> I have no stake in. I'm just like thinking, oh, that wasn't so long ago. I was married. I'm like, yeah, it's been, been married for a while. It's around the time Supernatural started. And Supernatural ran for a lot of seasons. It is now done. So anyway. So I think that's the whole gang. Again, Tommy said he would. He's probably going to join us again, maybe in the falls. We're getting around to season six or seven, but we are talking about season five tonight, and it is. I think it's my personal favorite for the reason that it was the ep- it was the season when I started watching the show absolutely regularly, when I was totally hooked on it, and I was like. You know, you talk about it during the week, go to work, go to college, and, and end up talking about, you know, X-Files. And the point where you start to speculate with other people about what's coming up and, you know, you're invested in the mythologies. And at this point, you know, um, you've got Internet chat rooms and Internet message boards and things like that that you can kind of go and read about the X-Files. And I had all of that sort of at my disposal. So it, I was invested in it in a different way than I have been before where I was sort of casually watching it. And it all happened with that last uh, the end of season four that ends. We've talked about this on the cliffhanger of potentially Mar. Uh, excuse me. Potentially Mulder has shot himself and is dead. And Scully is rep- reporting this information. I think all of us knew and suspected that is not the case. That's not what happened. And so we jumped into X-Files season five a little bit later. So this didn't air in the beginning of September like it normally did. And one of the reasons for that is we have about four or five less episodes, four less episodes than you would normally have. There are only 20 episodes of season five. And one of those reasons is the way it was done is they shot the film first. Everyone at this point knows X-Files fight the future, although I'm not sure if it was called fight the future at this point. Uh, was coming up. At one point, I don't know if you guys remember this, I think it was known as like Blackwoods or something like that. I remember that being a title that was floating around out there in, ref- in reference to the X-Files movie. And then, you know, one day suddenly it was Fight for fight the Future. But uh, because of that, season five was shot after the films. And I think what's interesting about it is it had to be very carefully plotted out. And so in a lot of ways, I like the structure of season five. It feels like there's a lot of intentionality when it comes to the mythology, but also 
a lot of intentionality when it comes to the monsters of the week. At least that's how I felt. Uh, but this didn't air. The original air date for the first episode um, uh, for Redux uh, uh, was November 2nd, 1997. So Redux, Redux, however you want to say it, was the premiere. It was written by Chris Carter. It was directed by R.W. Goodwin, who has done a ton of X-Files uh, by this point. And it reintroduces us back into the mythology, picks up right where we uh, ended with the potential that Mulder is dead. Uh, however, it does become, it, it begins about 24 hours before that bit where we see him in his apartment and he's distraught. And one of the reasons he's distraught is because he believes that everything that he's been searching for essentially been a lie, that perhaps there are no extraterrestrials. The government's been behind all of it, but in an even a more sinister way than we previously assumed. And he gets a, a phone call from uh, Michael Critchcow and he tells him, hey, they're listening. And of course, this is when, I don't know how many times has Mulder spotted, you know, <laughs> his apartment being wired or someone's poisoning his water. You think after a while, you know, you would just look for that when you walk in every day, but he, he realizes that he is being listened to. And then uh, when he's, when he's doing that and he goes into the apartment that's above him, that's when he finds another guy. I think it's Ostelhoff and he's burning the phone records. And then when he goes to, they have a like confrontation and he goes to shoot him. Mulder kills him. And then Mulder meets up with Scully, and he's telling him what's going on. Osterhoff was Department of Defense. They're spying on him. This has been happening for months, apparently. And he's also saying that uh, the phone records show that there's been all these calls made to the FBI. So they recognize there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of shady stuff going on internally now. And I think they've they've always suspected that, but it, at this point he's disillusioned and suspicious and then Scull, uh, when Scully goes to Mulder's apartment and identifies the bot that she identifies the body and says okay it's Mulder's so I think we all suspected it was something like that uh, you get Skinner comes in he meets Scully in the hallway he tells them that Blevins wants to meet with her and this kind of goes goes on as the episode progresses you you get into this uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this without dealing with all the details. But essentially, you you have this uncovering bit by bit of what Mulder believes is going on. Of course, Cigarette Smoking Man is kind of following the breadcrumbs, and he goes to Mulder's apartment, and he realizes he, though, seems to be surprised that the apartment's being monitored. So you have all these various uh, bits going on, and I we start to bring in... Uh, climate issues is right scully meets with the climatologist and they find that there's a new late when they said they found there was a new life form within them so she thinks she can prove she can prove the conspiracy if she can find evidence of the the same organism in her own body you know because she's sick so she finds skinner there and they uh they find more fake alien bodies inside of the Department of Defense. Well, Mulder's in there. And there's a scene uh, when he's going through the tunnel to the, the Pentagon. Is this the scene? It's been a little bit since I watched the episode. Doesn't he come into a room and there's this big filing system that has almost like a Raiders of the Lost Ark vibe to it? Mm -hmm. That's this episode. And uh, she finds the Scully uh, finishes the research. She finds the evidence that the material and the ice core samples are the same ones inside of her body. So she meets with the panel and she explains that Mulder was a victim of this conspiracy. And then uh, she's about to prevent, present the evidence. She collapses. And then Mulder brings that vial he had to the lone gunman. And they tell him it's not a cure. It's only deionized water. And that's essentially, I think if I'm remembering correctly, that's 
basically where the episode ends, you know, because it is a two part. So that's for you to part one. It's hard to talk about it without talking about part two, but I do want to get anybody's impressions about this. Uh, first time they saw it, thoughts when they watched it the second time. I think uh, obviously the um, the title there is sort of referencing that, yeah, we've been here before. We've done this song and dance. I, I want to say maybe it was in season two uh, when we had Scully sick and on her deathbed and we've had Mulder on his deathbed and missing at various points. And we're kind of back here uh, doing the same song and dance in a different way. What were your thoughts on this episode? Yeah, I thought it was quite good. Um, I, uh, I think that uh, one of the main characters contracting cancer in a in an action sci-fi drama crime horror show is very risky because um you know obviously everyone's thinking well the cancer's not going to win i mean they're not going to they're not going to take her out of the show um but uh, she, as she gets sick she's unable to participate uh, in the episodes as much, but I think the way they got around it by having her kind of stick to doing research and um, dramatic hospitalization scenes and stuff like that, not only sold that subplot, but sort of gave these first two episodes a, a, a sort of a ticking clock, which is like, you know, Scully's in trouble and she's got to find a cure. Uh, and that becomes an X-File. So very clever, um, very well done. And I I think I gave this episode an 8.5 out of 10. Yeah. I like this one a lot as well. I thought, I thought, I I mean, I guess you wouldn't have known when you started this series that you would go five or more seasons, but since you are this far along, um, I, I think it's interesting how they totally, not, not totally flipped, but, um Mulder's obsession is kind of crushed he's he's kind of an angry broken man at the beginning of this season and he's still hunting for a conspiracy but it's not the conspiracy that he spent you know 20 years believing in I, I really like how the uh, the mythology episodes this season well the, the at least the first half anyways he's he's coming at it from a different angle so it, it makes it a little more interesting this is the first season that they started shooting in Los Angeles as well. Is that wrong? Yeah, not yet. This is That's this is year. the last one in in Vancouver. Oh, this is the last one in Vancouver. I think I knew I mean I knew Mulder wasn't going to kill himself, but there was no way that he was going to kill himself even if he thought that Scully got the cancer because of him because he was never going to leave her alone like that. So like I wasn't even a little bit scared that he was gone when last season ended or this one started back then. And um, I do remember like they're kind of already leaning into the movie a little bit with talking about the ice. Yes. Yeah. And I, I like, um, I like something Dave that you said and something Karen you said as well, uh, Dave, that you mentioned that he's, you know, he, kind of being the broken, uh, disillusioned man at the beginning. And he kind of is in the beginning of this uh, episode and or in the, through the entirety of this episode and sort of the beginning of the season. But I think what's interesting is we saw like when when Scully was abducted, and I think that was season two, 
I, I believe uh, she's abducted early or about, mm-hmm. you know, about a quarter of the way through season two. Um, because he, I, I remember that here, there we see him very despondent and distraught and he hooks up with vampires, if I remember correctly. You know, <laughs> there's that whole episode where we kind of have, you know, Reggie uh-huh. Diaries, David, uh, Duchovny come out and he's like partying with the vampires. But in there we were seeing him sort of bereft and kind of a without hope. And I think we've seen him at various stages like that, uh, two later when they were poisoning his water, poisoning his water and, He's uh, getting put in headlocks by Skinner and his father's <laughs> killed. All this stuff sort of happens at the same time. I think what's interesting here as we see it play out is I expected that to be sort of his mode for season five was uh, angry, disillusioned Mulder. And he kind of goes in it. Like you said, Dave, he goes at it in a different direction because I think of what happens, the kind of bait and switch that, oh, it's not Mulder that's truly in danger here. It's Scully. And he's and his quest is really, again, it's been that in the past, but now he's realizing that he almost in a sense – that the only thing he has to fight for, that the only future he has to fight for is really, you know, one where, you know, she's able to survive. And I think what happens in his journey through these two episodes sort of puts him in a place where by the time we get to, I think it's, um, it's one of the later episodes. It's just a monster of the week, but you know, someone says something to me. He's like, I'm not even sure I believe in that anymore. Uh, but he, when he says, I'm not sure I believe in that anymore, he says in such a casual sort of way that there's almost not an apathy, but through this whole season, you see a Mulder that's sort of like he's resigned, but he seems like he's considering that maybe there's a world, maybe there is a world without the X-Files. And that doesn't last for very long because of everything that happens. But I, I think it's interesting that we don't see him kind of playing bitter, edgy, or completely disillusioned for the whole series. And then, Karen, what you had said about the idea that no, he's not going to you know, he wouldn't kill himself because he wouldn't leave Scully in this situation. And I think for someone that hadn't been watching the X-Files regularly, and now here I am, and what's the first thing I see? The whole, all the alien mythology is getting tossed out the window, and uh, <laughs> Scully's dying. What a great time to be an X-Files fan. <laughs> so, so what my takeaway was, like what I was getting drawn in by was that relationship, you know, which has been built pretty strong by this point and realizing all it's, you know, it very clearly he's in it. um, He's doing everything he can for her and vice versa. She's spending every little bit of energy that she barely has put into uh, clearing him. And it's always been that way, but we see that the, I feel like the, particularly in, in anticipation of the movie, we see those bonds tightening. And of course, on the outside of things, this is the point when they're famous, like at a high level, you know, in the, in, in the, in the real world, everybody's starting to move towards, let's see Mulder and Scully hook up. And yet the, the show, I think is still resisting that a bit, but showing their bond to be something that's, um, that is now the point where, where even the, the conspiracy and the cabal can't quite shake it. And I think that's a big thread that's built through this season. They maybe because they've had the time to really fine tune it. So that's what these two episodes, even though they walk through some of the things we've seen before, that's what I. That's why I think these are some of my favorite season opener. These two are my favorite season openers because of the bond that they have. That you see, um, because they don't even need to talk about it as much. We, you know, it, it's just an organic thing by this point. Yeah. Anyone have any other thoughts about the first half of this uh, this two parter? I was a little surprised at how emotional the cigarette smoking man seemed to be when he thinks Mulder's dead. Um, other stuff comes out, you know, in, in other episodes, but it, uh, I, I was like starting to wonder, Oh, why, why is this? And you may find out later in the season. Mm. You may. 
mean, you or you may not. I don't know. The X Files uh, is not great at giving yeah, you answers, yeah. but and I, it's, it's interesting to bring that up because they because you're absolutely right. That's done 100 percent on purpose. We were supposed to respond to that with a huh. Let me tuck this away. You know, from our point of hindsight, I don't know. Like how, what were they thinking at the time when they did that? I don't know because, you know, a lot of – there's so many red herrings and things that happen that I, I, I kind of wish that maybe there had been some more definitive movement on that earlier. You know, um, we, we kind of – you know, I don't want to talk too much about that now. But it is interesting. I saw that too and I thought the same thing. I'm like, man, yeah. But what is that, you know, right? That from my vantage point now, what does it mean exactly? <laughs> um, yeah. Go ahead. I, I thought it was interesting that um, the way I, I love the X Files and I love it when it gives me, when the episodes, when it gives me answers, <laughs> which isn't often. But um, that long exposition regarding the US military and the, uh, you know, the war machine, that video montage that they had going on with the defense yes. employee um, was, and, and and it didn't escape me that it was like, they were essentially walking in a big circle, which is kind of a metaphor for everything that Mulder goes through in this whole season, one big circle from believing and not believing to falling back on his initial thoughts uh, regarding alien abduction. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. That's an excellent point. Yeah, even the title of these two episodes is like, and he's been here before too, right? He's even done this same thing mm -hmm. already. But that 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 dialogue that you're talking about, Shannon, that was for me, again, as someone who's just come to this, was like, wow, this is even more interesting in some ways. Like, this seems like a bigger powder keg than if they discovered that the aliens were going to come down tomorrow, right? You know, like in some ways it's like, oh, well – They've been chasing all this. Now, I don't know what that means for every other weird creature that they've encountered, but mm -hmm. if this is really just, like you said, the war machine. If this has all uh, been a concoction, somehow, ha if they were to have gone through with that line of thinking, it was like, wow, that's kind of fascinating. How are they going to get, you know, how are they going to do that? And, mm -hmm. and I think it was very interesting. Of course, you know, it's the X-Files. They pull an interesting thread, and then suddenly they put a big old patch on top of it. Like, okay. Yeah, that moment where he walks into those rooms and sees those giant yes. files and then sees those lines and lines of beds of of aliens, quote, unquote, um, is, are the moments that I wait for in the X-Files. I mean, those are it's great. That was big stuff, yeah. And, yeah. That's very cool. And you know what's so interesting about that? The last thought I have about that idea that, okay uh, – we're going to maybe not debunk this, but move it in the way that this is the government working. X-Files came in 1993, right? So, but if you look around, like we've talked about this when we first started the show, science fiction movies, particularly, and even TV shows, weren't really doing a lot, right? Like in the 93, 94, 95, you had little things here or there and movies like Species and, you know, Waterworld and stuff like that were what was coming out. 97, which is the summer that happens right before this season starts. I mean, we had uh, movies like The Fifth Element, The Men in Black, which obviously is very much tied, like, to the X-Files uh, phenomena. And then uh, Contact, and you had tons of Event Horizon, all these different movies, mm -hmm. and you were starting to get, you know, you had another alien movie about to come out. And suddenly science fiction was, like, alive again. And ironically, the moment that it's alive again is the, mo is, is the moment here in the X-Files. The X-Files is like, well, what if 
what if everything we're doing here isn't aliens? You know? Right. What if yeah, and I, I can't remember anything before this that really took a poke at the U.S. government. Not to this degree. And I really liked that, that setup because it did sort of shake things up because I thought, and maybe you guys thought too, I thought we were heading into the end. Like uh, with season five and the movie, I thought that we were coming up. I was like, how long can they sustain this? I was wrong. But I I was wondering, I, I thought well, we must be moving into the end game here some so, soon. Does anyone want to talk about or summarize uh, the back half of this, uh, Redux Part 2? I can I can do that, too. I'm, I, I have written in my notes, Scully is sick again. <laughs> again. <laughs> Scully is sick again is, yeah, could have been the title. Um, and it's, yeah, it's uh, that's that's very true. Uh, I think one of the things big, that's... A big moment, Fox's sister, right? Yep. You know, mm -hmm. calls yeah. the smoking man dad. Hello. There's a lot of emotional scenes between Mulder and Scully in the second part. I loved the second part of this two-parter. And where she tells him, you have to lay it on me, like you have to make me the scapegoat for this. Oh, just made me cry. Yeah. I think a lot of the emotional stuff that happens here uh, occurs in this, in this episode. And we see those passing again of the, of the sort of totems, right? You know, we have the, her cross uh, comes back into play here as it did previously in, in some of the previous episodes when they were dealing with them being sick. Um, interesting too you have this bit where i think this is the episode where the cigarette man has a meeting with the elder right and he tries to convince him saying that like you know well if we give him a good reason to Mulder could join us right that he'll join our side mm -hmm. and uh of course Mulder is sort of like he he sees the end in sight here in terms of scully's life but also he's ready to reveal this entire thing just blow blow the uh the the lid wide open on this and then uh as he's leaving and he meets with a uh, cigarette smoking man who tells him he can cure Scully's cancer if Mulder joins his side. And so that like the, you know, the, the devil offering his hand sort of thing. And um, I, I think what's interesting when we get to the bit with Samantha, because that's kind of how what comes out of this, right? Is this meeting and then uh, Mulder meets with Samantha. And again, from someone who was not had been paying attention to all this was like, Oh, there's, Mulder's sister and what's going on here. And I, at that point I had not seen all the stuff involving the clones and everything that happened in season four and the bit with the bounty hunter and all of this stuff. So, uh, but it almost felt like I didn't even need to know that. Right. You know, she doesn't remember anything about the abduction. She's got to stay. We're sort of assume, are we to assume that she's just Samantha, that she's been hanging around. And uh, like you said, uh, Shannon, that interesting part where she calls him dad, it's like, well, what, what is this? And uh, what were what were everybody's thoughts about that, particularly for those of you that had been watching the show sort of regularly to this point? Like, did that feel like it was just throwing a bunch of stuff at you or, or throwing some stuff out? Well, this is like the second story about what happened. Third story about what happened to Samantha, right? Because we had the clones. Yeah. And then we had the serial killer. And then the, there was that ranch with the, all the bees where, the, where she was mm -hmm. a little girl still. Mm -hmm. So, so you, at this point, I'm like, okay, that's not Samantha. Right. Yeah, I didn't. I, I mean, because it's cigarette smoking man, 
And again, again, we're watching this weekly. Like I had, you know, right now we're yeah. binging this, but after a summer off and, and a week in between, I just figured he was, he was, he was, you know, full of crap. And it was, it was some sort of, some sort of uh, trap or ploy or something. Right. To get him on their side. Yeah. Yeah. Conspiracy. This is monumental to me. And then uh, now I watch all the other seasons. I'm like, this is nothing. It's just another, it's <laughs> a bunch of <laughs> bull. Uh, one really cool thing about this episode is uh, the one of the chief FBI guys, Blevins, is back uh, in the show. And I I know he was in the pilot, but um, it's really cool that they dusted him off and got him back in the show. He may appear in it bef- between the pilot and now, but I don't remember any That's incidents. So it's really notice. cool that they kept all that in their short term memory. And that's right, because he's the guy. He wants him to like. He's he basically wants Mulder to name Skinner, right? Like uh, as the traitor. Is yes. that right? And in, yeah. and in the first episode, he wants uh, he wants Scully to do the same thing to Mulder. He, he's like, yeah. I want you to ch- check and report on what he's doing, so we can find out. That's right. Him. He's he inst- he's kind of the instigation of the whole thing. Yeah. That's that's really cool. I didn't even I didn't even pick up on that. No, um, me neither. Very cool. And of course, Skull, you know, um, uh, he he refuses, and uh, then we see that uh, there's a uh, Scully has a PET scan performed, and after the insertion of the chip shows there's no excuse me the insertion of the chip they built the chip and shows no improvement. She's dismayed. She expresses her spiritual struggles to her mother, and I, I thought that scene that's when the, the uh, uh, her mom I think wants to have the priest come and meet with her or something. And mm-hmm. uh, Scott, she does turn to prayer. Prayer. She asks for the priest, and uh, I think it's interesting. And then um, Mulder's there, and he sees their meeting. And Scully tells him he'll be in her prayers. I thought that scene. You're talking about emotional scenes, um, Karen. I thought that was one as well because I think from Mulder's eyes, you know, there's a certain feeling that okay, she's done. Like she's like, if she's not giving up, she's sort of like turning herself over to this is it. You know. Um, that she's probably kind of done fighting in a sense. And I think there is, there feels, and again, we know this is a serialized show that's headed towards a movie where you're not going to have Mulder fighting, fighting uh, all of this by himself. So we, uh, we as kind of assume Scully's going to survive too, but I think that there's a, an emotional immediacy to everything here that I thought really kind of worked. And this is the first time Mulder meets her brother. Yeah. I wish he punched him in the oh, head. Yeah. <laughs> when he is walking in and he says hey um let's leave the work away from here i was like shut up bill it's not like these two have a job counting widgets at acme like their job is a big part of who they are oh i could not stand her brother she's dying you know with that too yeah well he's he's always unhelpful yeah, always. Even always. beyond unhelpful, he's just a nuisance. He's he's a jerk. Bother. Yeah, he's that kind of family member. You're like, uh, I removed you from Facebook. His, his mm-hmm. sister is a doctor and an FBI agent, and he doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for her at work. All. What the hell does he do? <laughs> yeah, well, he's military, right? Same as he works at a bank. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Go back to the Wendy's drive-through. Anyway, <laughs> nothing wrong with the Wendy's drive-through guys, but. Uh, so and then what, what what happens after that? There's a the more sort of uh, what do you want to call it? The skullduggery afoot, and then Blevins is killed, right? Uh, and then the, the um, uh, who is it that kills him? It's like the it's the guy in his office, like the senior agent, right? And 
uh, but I don't remember if there's a name associated with him. But then he makes it look like Blevins killed himself. And then right. uh, you have Skinner. I think the way the episode uh, ends is Skinner meets with Mulder. And then that he's, he tells him that uh, the because we see the cigarette smoking man again, we're like, okay, is the cigarette smoking man really dead? And we have so many people that potentially die, right? Like, mm-hmm. cause doesn't, doesn't Skinner say, hey, the cigarette smoking man's dead? Mm-hmm. His body wasn't found, but he's dead. Well, okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, and when Skinner reveals that, uh, reveals that, I think Mulder tells him Scully's cancer, has, Mulder then tells Skinner, hey, Scully's cancer's gone into remission, and I think the most interesting thing about the end of the episode, at least to me, and I, I think that something that Chris Carter's done time and again, but here he does it in a way that feels, um, Right, you know, I, I like the way it's done. It's not particularly heavy-handed. There's an ambiguity there, right? Like, there's an uncertainty about what actually saved Scully. Was it the was it the microchip? Did this really put the scant cancer into remission? Uh, was it was it her prayers to God? What exactly did it? But we aren't really left with any kind of clear. Uh, not only are we left with a clear answer, I don't think we are. It's interesting in the way in which we are left without. Um, Mulder and Scully really trying to push either way on it. You know what I mean? There's sort of a thing of, okay, you know, uh, you were saved. We're not entirely sure how. Yeah. I think that this, the first two episodes were meant to answer a lot of questions from episodes that preceded it. Yeah. Yes. And he did it in a, in a genuine way for sure. Chris Carter, but, um, but by the end it was like, uh, the cigarette smoking man is dead and Scully's cancer's gone. <laughs> so, right. Okay. That's up. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the problem with, I think, all of these seasons of finale stories. It's always like paint yourself into a box. I think that the point that, that Victor made at the beginning about, like, before we start talking about this in regards to Scully's cancer and everything, is that's a, that is a double-edged sword, right? You're going to have this person have cancer. You want to handle it realistically. You want to have it. Uh have impact and meaning because there are viewers who have cancer, right? And who've lost family members of cancer watching this. And yeah, while we don't want to necessarily see our hero die, we also don't want to see her brush cancer off and hop around and everything's good again. Right. You know, like Mm -hmm. how do you walk that line and resolve that story? And I think, you know, Chris Carter's handled a lot of things over the years. of The X-Files extremely clunky and borderline idiotic in some cases, but I think on this count, I, I, I give him credit. I think he wrapped it up. I think he puts that piece aside, but he leaves that door open because it's still, uh, I think the choice to make this question of, is this the government all along? This doesn't deal with aliens and they're pulling these strings. I think leaving that element open means that the cancer wasn't just, uh, it, it feels like it did matter, that it does have some importance still. And it wasn't just, oh, here's a way to throw some drama in. I don't know if you guys felt that way. But I thought that they brought it to a close in a way that, yeah, we could see this is the, the, the machinery at work, the screenwriting machinery at work. But it didn't feel like I had been sort of like uh, jerked around. I think he handled it delicately. Yeah. Does anyone else I think have also, any on the uh... – go ahead, Dave. Sorry. I was going to say that, that I think with also when you get – like with the end of this episode um, – where the next episode goes, it kind of gives it space and time to breathe. And maybe by the, I, I think there's quite a few episodes before we get back to this actual storyline. So as a viewer, you might, you might kind of uh, not, not forget about what's going on, but you don't get right back to the cigarette smoking man or the cancer or any of that for, for at least four or five episodes. 
So kind of you kind of lose track of it a bit, you know, when when you were watching it back then. Yeah, I, I agree. Do we have anything else about the the season openers that we wanted to talk about? What did you think of that line? He says uh, at, at some point, Mulder says to the cigarette smoking man, "I don't care whose father you are, I'll put you down." <laughs> okay. Well, okay then. Um, he had another funny line when he showed up at the hospital. Please tell me you're here with chest pains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. I think this is one of his best seasons in terms of his one-liners. There are some mm. he says later on. It's just something he says to cry check when he comes back. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, um, yes, yeah, yeah. I could beat you with one hand behind my back. Isn't that how you beat yourself? Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite X-Files lines. But anyway, that uh, I thought it was a really nice way to, to kind of get us on track and get us ready for season. And then even though we've got Boulder's alive, Scully's alive and not sick anymore, Cigarette Smoking Man's maybe dead, uh, you've got and, – and, and Skinner is sort of potentially maybe even more on their side than he's ever been. You, you still have this thing, you know, well, what is going on? Are there no aliens? This is all a giant conspiracy. There's plenty of mystery left. And – then I think what's cool is we, because we've only got 20 episodes and they want to piece out that uh, storyline, the, the actual mythology, I think we, we get to uh, in, enjoy a couple of Monster of the Week episodes without this overhanging uh, element of the conspiracy. Because even in, in the other seasons, it felt like the conspiracy was always sort of front and center. And I think here... We it, it just doesn't seem to factor in a lot to some of these stories, particularly uh, some of the ones like the very first, uh, I guess, standalone is interesting because it sort of does dovetail with the story, but it it, it goes back in time. And so it, it kind of brings us to a point before uh, Mulder was really aware of the grand conspiracy and uh, before. Uh, a lot of the things that I mean, Scully is before Scully and Mulder are, are partners, and it's it's before um, the, sh- the show has even begun. So I think that's interesting. That was an episode I chose. It's called "The Unusual Suspects." Uh, there are uh, there are a lot of things I love about this episode, uh, and there are some things that I think I picked it because there's a couple of things I I want to talk about uh, that I think this episode does that that play on things that for me in drama kind of irritate me <laughs> usually franchise stuff that is done here in a way that's interesting but the, you know first and foremost i love this episode because it took place in baltimore it takes place in a convention center in baltimore at a computer show i actually had been at this point in time in 97 i would have been to computer shows like that and it catches that ambiance perfectly it dovetails with uh you know you got richard belzer coming in so you you have it dovetailing with another show. I thought that was really neat. I think that's the first time that X Files had done that. I think by this point, Mulder and Scully had el- had ended up on The Simpsons, but I think that's the extent of our crossovers, right? Like so, uh, seeing him come in here at the beginning and in that Baltimore Convention Center again, the ambiance is is perfect. It's like on point. The big thing about this episode, the way it was advertised and what it truly is, is it's the moment when Mulder meets the lone gunman right so the lone gunman have had have been pretty prominent in the series up to this point i think in a sense of as far as Mulder's sidekicks but this is the first time where we have an episode that it, in it really focuses on them and they are the despite this opening where you see the swat come running into the baltimore this warehouse in baltimore and then there's a uh, john munch comes in and Mulder's laying naked naked on the ground screaming they're here 
And then uh, you have uh, Frohickey and Byers and Langley. They're all sitting there like in prison. Right. And I think uh, and then you've got that great bit where, you know, it's the tell me what happened. You know, much is there and he's bringing them all in to explain. And then they tell the story. They get to be front and center and the main character. So I was kind of immediately hooked by that element of the story. Uh, before I go any further with what happens, something that is a big pet peeve of mine. I don't know how you guys feel about this. In I know, I, and I don't think it, it was happening excessively at this point in time in '97, but we were starting to see it crop up, and it had already happened maybe a few times. Is this idea that when we want to, when we've got a successful franchise, a successful story with characters that people love? And there's a gets to a certain point where we're like, well, how much further can we push these people and give them something new? And maybe these characters are so far along in their determined path within a story. What is it that they haven't seen? And so people always decide, let's go back, right? And I think here it's great because these are side characters. So we're going to go back and we're going to see uh, how these guys all came together. And maybe we're actually going to learn something about them because we know very little about them. But by the same token, the fact that Mulder's seemingly always known them and that they're kind of mysterious and they just seem to be, you know, hacker schlubs is part of their mystique, right? Part of their 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 interest. Yeah. So anytime a series decides, let's go back and and do a prequel where we explain everything about somebody, like, guess what? Anakin Skywalker built C3PO. Can you believe it? And there's this, and don't you want to know how the Kessel run was done? No, I don't care about that. I think Don't you you don't want to know how Han Solo got his famous dice? Exactly. But but they, so I think a perfect example, the, to me, the most egregious example I could think of from earlier was the beginning of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? So <laughs> yeah. when you're, you're making this character, Indiana Jones, you're sitting there looking at him and like, okay, you know what, let's give him a scar because that's that's mysterious. How did he get the scar? And he's got the whip and the hat. It gives him it instantly that the genius of doing something like that is it instantly gives him a uh, a well-worn history he's been here he's been places he's done things no he didn't he got all that in one afternoon you know right <laughs> so we're gonna go back yeah. and explain how in a single afternoon and in, in five minutes indiana jones when he was 14 got his scar his hat and his whip all in one go that's terrible <laughs> i don't know whose idea I, I agree with you i don't know whose idea was to start that did i don't remember as a fan back in the 80s saying i want all that info <laughs> yeah characters right. are way better with a bit of mystery but yeah it, it, it's actually a trend right now. Like you, they, it's hideous. You can't have a series, a, a, te- a, sh- a show or film series without eventually doing the prequel and ruining everything. And I think it's laziness. I personally, I mean, maybe that's you know, kind well, it's, of it's uh, it's lazy fan service. That's it for is. Sure. So here they do that exact thing in a sense, <laughs> yeah. but they do it with side characters that uh, that a uh, could use a little fleshing out. It isn't beyond the pale to, to believe that these three guys met at a, at a, at a computer show, right? Right. Uh, and, I, and it's so funny and well done, too. It, it is. And it, I think kind of the genius element of it is that we do realize that, you know, we probably just assume these are a bunch of weird guys that are fellow travelers on the web, and they came together because of their interest in uh, sort of, you know, the conspiracy in the arcana of the web. Well, that explains at least Fro Hickey and Langley, right? But Byers, where Byers always looks like the weird guy. I'm like, how did he end up here? And so I think this episode and what happens where we see them sort of pulled into this story is really interesting. And we have Suzanne Medeski, who's the person that initially she's telling them that, uh, oh, she's trying to, uh, what, uh, get a hold of her daughter's been kidnapped by her ex-boyfriend and she's trying to get them to, uh, 
do some hacking for. And suddenly she realizes that they, they realize that they're getting into the Department of Defense. You know, a memo ago they were trying to sell people cable, and now they're like uh, immersed in this. And of course, they, she tells them that the angry uh, boyfriend uh, is Mulder. You know, they see him walking through the uh, uh, and just the whole setup. I think is. Beat for beat, I personally think they just kind of do it right. And what's really cool is as Byers is being drawn in by this and in and Suzanne is sort of uh, giving him this whole spiel, You, the way it's set up is almost like a noir, right? Like he's the hapless guy, the rube that is getting, uh, you know, he, he's a normal guy. Now he's getting all all of this dumped upon him. And, you know, it's not, it's not unlike the Matrix, right? Except he finds out oh, he's just being used <laughs> so that she can... Uh, do this other thing but it turns out that this other thing what she's trying to do where she's trying to essentially whistleblow on this uh this what is it it's basically like an aerosol gas right yeah it's going to cause paranoia and it's going to cause uh chaos and 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 devastation and this dovetails perfectly into the idea that hey the enemy of this season is the government it's the man right and uh we don't need aliens and we're going to show you how deep this goes that part, I think, was brilliant. I think the other thing is it shows Byers in his interactions here. He gets an emotional stake in the game. He realizes what's going on. And we see him uh, have a similar journey to Mulder, right? It puts him as a kind of a spiritual, uh, you know, they have some similarities there that we wouldn't have necessarily guessed. So I like that the lone gunman through this episode they are not just guys that are helping Mulder out because, it you know, it gives them kicks. They're, they have a vested interest that is not unlike Mulder's interest. And I, I really like the way that was handled. And I like that kind of noir storyline that, you know, first she's the femme fatale, then she's a damsel. She's, she's potentially a damsel in distress. Maybe she's a femme fatale, but then maybe she is just another person like everyone else out there who uh, it's all of us against the government. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was really good. I think that that, that storyline with Suzanne uh, whistleblowing would have, not worked as well if the lone gunman hadn't been the people that she lets this storyline loose on. Uh, if it had been Mulder instead, then I think Scully probably would have brought him back down to earth real fast, and they would have had to, the writers would have had to work a lot harder to earn the the story beats in this episode. But with the lone gunman, it works perfectly. So. Yeah, right, they've awesome. never been through this before at this point in their lives, and uh, yeah. yeah, that that's a great point because this is a this is a C storyline for for Mulder and Scully, right? This is barely the you know this is barely going to raise the hackles, but for them, it's a perfect origin story. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, there were two things that came out at me at this particular episode. The 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 I love when the X Files pulls from conspiratorial history. And this, you know, gas, this, uh, you know, prepackaged gas that's going to go out to the public. Um, I was, uh, did some research on it. And, you know, back in the 1950s, there was this thing that was called the um, Operation Big City, where uh, it was uh, thought that the U.S. government was gassing um, New York City by having, um, I guess, some sort of a hallucinogenic gas um, hooked up to a ta- taxi taxi cars and drive around New York City and make people paranoid and so on and so forth. At least that's what, <laughs> that's the excuse we're giving New York City people. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's that. I mean, th- that's 
that's been a, a longstanding conspiracy theory is that we're being drugged or poisoned or gassed or something like that. And I loved how they wove that into the story. And the other thing is, um, you know, this is the birth of the internet. Like, look at the computers that they're on, right? You know, for the yes. first time, I'm happy to this. So there's security suspicions around the internet already. I remember when it came out, you know, I mean, this was the time when computers had its own room, you know, I don't know about you guys, but in like, you know, when computers came out, my dad would be like, well, let's put it in the computer room, you know, and like, right. it was the big giant behemoths that, you know, used telephone connections to get onto the internet. And you heard that sort of sound with the modem and everything. So there was a, a fear of the internet at that point too. And I thought that was really interesting. I love how they got their name. Um, I used to call them the three blind mice, but like they're the lone gunman, you know, I love how they got their name. That was brilliant. How they wove that into the story. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's great to see an origin story of like sub secondary characters like this, that that you've always wanted to know where they came from. I love, I love hearing about origin stories as long as they're done right. Yeah, I think this one is. And I, I personally think, like, at one level, that line, I heard it was a lone gunman, is a wah-wah on paper. Mm -hmm. But that X is the guy that says it. That essentially is the guy that gives them their name. And the way he says it and that look he has, they nailed it. <laughs> yeah. And the crossover with Homicide, the TV show. Um, funny enough, when I watched this again, I was like, my first job ever was a PA on Homicide, the TV show. Oh, that's awesome. So, I've worked with Richard Belger before, and I mean, my job was to literally get him coffee, cigarettes, and lunch, but um, he's not acting at all in any way. This is literally <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you can, you get that feeling. He was on a, he was on a roll of crossovers here because uh, on the, on November 12th and 14th, he did, of this year, he did a crossover with Law and Order and Homicide, and then he did this episode, it was on the 16th, so he was making the rounds. Yeah. I think his character's been on more shows than any other character with all the Law and Orders and Homicide and the X-Files. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, Homicide was really good, by the way. Like that, it was. I, it was yeah. a nice tip of the hat because probably it's probably the most uh, widely referenced crime procedural after the X-Files. So I, I think that it, it would, the X-Files writers probably were big fans of it and they were like, yeah, let's let's get Bells in here. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And, and they do it in the right way, right? They Instead of having him come in and be sort of like, you know, he's not going to be a partner to, to Mulder and Scully. That's just not the kind of person he is, right? Like it, they use him in just the right way, I think, yeah. without it being distracting, but being cool, you know. Well, he's the dry skeptic. A very light, a very light touch because I didn't get it at all. I, I have never seen uh, the show that he's originally on. I know, I know who Richard Belzer is, but I didn't. I never watched Homicide or Law and Order, so I didn't get like that's awesome that that uh, they were able to do that. And if you didn't watch those shows, you just think, "Oh, cool, Richard Belzer's on the show." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Homicide was like Law and Order with less money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. A little grittier. You were more likely to get shot on Homicide, yeah, obviously. That, you know. Yeah, we used to say we were the uh, MTV version of crime shows. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'd say but, with Homicide, there are probably a, a few episodes per season are absolutely brilliant. Um, not all of them are brilliant, but they they did keep a very strong presence in the writer's room all the way. It's a lot of seasons. It's like eight or nine seasons or something like that. 
uh, all the way to the end. So it, I think it's definitely worth watching if you're if you're into yeah. those kind of shows. It keeps its identity pretty much the same too, you know. And in, in, in you know sometimes shows morph and become something a little bit different, but it it kind of is just about the same as it was when it began in a sense, you know, in its sensibility. Yeah. Um, anything, Ellen? You know, oh, so a couple lines that I did I did like. I also like the end. I think is again I haven't seen this one in a little bit. Um, because watch it, you know, probably a, a couple months ago to when we were going to review. But isn't it Suzanne who says, "No matter how paranoid you are, you're not paranoid enough," or something like that? Isn't that yeah. what she says as she's crossing the street and uh, he sees her last time? The other scene that I love is when I I think it's um, they go in to get is it Langley and he's in there playing like Dungeons and Dragons or something. And I just remember him like <laughs> rolling the dice and he says, "Come on, Papa needs a new sort of wounding or something like that." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. He's a gamer. Uh, that, yeah. That's uh, what, when they go to. Is that for, uh, is that Frohickey? That his name? The the blonde haired, the that was playing Dungeons and Dragons. Anyways, when they go get him, I like how they're very believably antagonistic. Like they don't they don't seem to actually like each other at first, but they do become the lone gunman as a team. But he has to. Yeah. He has to. Yes, they. Uh, the older guy has to tell tell him that. Oh, his kung fu is better. <laughs> yes, I love that. And they totally seem like plausible, like bootleg cable providers Abs- in absolutely. Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, um, they're they're very believable as as uh, three '90s nerds in this. It's, it's you can totally see why um, why the the taller. Sorry, what did you call him? Langley. Like, I can never remember these. Game. Yeah, Langley. He, the, yeah, Frohickey is the long-haired one. Yep, or, or the older guy. Uh, Frohickey's the, the older guy, guy. yeah. Uh, Langley's okay. tall. Anyways, so yeah, Langley gets, I mean, just enamored with uh, with, with a, a, an attractive woman finally talking to him. So that's how he gets suckered into this. It's great. Very believable. I never watched the Lone Gunman series. Is this episode kind of what that series was like? It's what they wanted that series to be like. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to be honest, I saw and I think I saw the pilot of that show. I think this episode is, you know, shows will do what they call backdoor pilots, you know, where they're like, OK, can we make something of this? And I think that this was the first foot in the water. Like, could these guys, ca-? you know, you'll see them do this the next season or two. I can't remember when Lone Gunman, this TV show comes on, but I think it's within a couple years of this. Right. And uh, it. um it didn't. It didn't make much of an impression, I don't think. Um, and I didn't watch it regularly. But I think this is a you know, as a as a centerpiece for them, it's perfect. And I don't you know, could they carry a show? Could they have carried a show if it had been better written? Maybe I don't know. Um, but I love this episode. I, anybody anybody have anything else on this one? Okay, so then we go, uh, and I, I do like how, th- I didn't think I mentioned it, but this is, what, 1989 is when this takes place. So it's like uh, several years before uh, what's happening now in the in the present day. And so that episode gets to kind of sit aside and not have to deal with uh, the remission of Scully's cancer, what happened to Cigarette Smoking Man, all that stuff's not on the table. And then what, what's interesting is instead of jumping to an episode where we hear a lot about that, we get another uh, you know, really our first Monster of the Week episode, and that is the episode uh, number, uh, episode four, right? Detour. And yeah, yes, the appropriately titled Detour because it's sort of a detour from the main storyline. But yeah, uh, really loved this episode. Um, 
it was written by Frank Spotnitz. Um, and uh, yeah, it opens up with um, a survey team in an ever or a, in a Florida forest uh, taking readings, and one of the people just vanishes or gets swallowed up by by the ground, and um, you know something's stalking them in the woods. And then we cut to Scully and Mulder with another couple of agents, uh, Agent Stone Cipher and Agent Kinsley. Um, <laughs> These guys are batting a thousand with names. I mean, they really <laughs> nail it. But um, they're uh, Scully and Mulder in the back seat, going to a uh, a, a bureau. Uh, what do you call that? Like a um, team building. building. Yeah. yeah, team building, <laughs> team building exercises. <laughs> and um, Mulder is just making uh, jokes about it, and uh, you can see. <laughs> Even though Jillian Anderson's out of focus in the car, you can see that she is breaking character, laughing at Duchovny's delivery of the lines because they really are hilarious. Um, and um, yeah, uh, they just happen to stop uh, at the road at the roadblock d- due to this event. And of course, Mulder gets uh, he kind of wanders into the forest and he meets the local head of the investigation. Um, Officer Michelle Fizikas, who uh, that's another name that they took from the crew. Um, Fizikas is, is a, a producer on the show. Uh, and um, anyway, great, great name. And it also sets um, Mulder, Scully and Fizikas up for kind of a pseudo love triangle like usual with um, <laughs> these two super attractive women, both sort of vying for Mulder's attention. <laughs> and um Anyway, uh, Mulder quickly sort of forms this theory that, oh, yeah, like another person disappears. And he's like, this this reminds me of a primitive culling technique. And uh, (laughs) that's one of several leaps in this uh, in this episode that you kind of have to go with. But um, but in any case, there there is a cryptid loose in the forest and uh, the cryptid is taking out people. and uh, soon uh, Mulder and Scully are back in in the woods with a with an expert. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there's a couple of uh, the, the the story is kind of a cross between deliverance and predator. Uh, That's a good and, way. To uh, it. Yeah, there, there are a couple of nods to the um, the, the predator uh, script where like the, the experts that's with them has this infrared gun that he's, you know, they're sort of tracking the, uh, the cryptid with. And um, I think it's Mulder that says, Hey, that's pretty sophisticated for government issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, in any case, yeah, they, uh, they mentioned my favorite crypt, my personal favorite cryptid, the Mothman in this yeah. uh, episode mm-hmm. as well. And um yeah, I, I guess that's that's about it without going into spoilers. But uh, yeah, it's a pretty exciting episode, and um, the agents get in <laughs> in deep danger in this episode. They sing songs, um, and uh, yeah, pretty good. What do you guys think? I, I thought it was great too. If you hadn't picked it first, I was going to pick it. Um, <laughs> like not just because again, I mentioned earlier this is the last season filmed in Canada. So I wanted to pick an episode that was, you know, this is going to be the end of the, the forest episodes and that, that kind of feel that, that filming in Vancouver gives you the kind of misty, foggy, rainy air. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so this one uses the, uh, 
it uses the locations great, but I don't for a second believe that this is Florida. Nobody in Florida <laughs> is searching the woods with pants and long coats on. Right. right. You can see Mulder's breath at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, hmm. I was in but, Florida uh, in January and it wasn't that cold. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I love how you, yeah, I was, I would have also described it as predator meets Bigfoot. And I, and I, I, I do they kind of reference at one point the, um, uh, the fountain of youth. They do. Yes. Did, did, did they not just do that? A very similar storyline in uh jungle cruise with the rock. I haven't seen that. Yes. Oh, Yes, they, they it's essentially it's very similar to the yeah movie. they've I mean, done this plot out of many things. There was a movie called The Cave in two thousand five that was very similar. Oh okay, oh I haven't seen that, but uh, yeah this this is is is, is a really entertaining episode the the two the two other the other two agents that are oblivious to Mulder's hate for them that's really good. <laughs> yeah, they just want to get to the team building exercise. It's, it's so important for their relationship. They don't want to miss the wine and yeah. cheese reception. <laughs> Right. Which, why they had to send some FBI agents from DC to Florida yeah. for a communication seminar. And first of all, Mulder says they don't need one, they communicate just fine. But wasn't it just last year when he thought she got a tattoo in Philly because he didn't buy her a desk? Yes. So right, I think right, they right. could, he could use a communication seminar. I think she's glaring sure. at him when he says it, but. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I, this is an iconic episode. This is a great, Love and it. it's it's so simplistic, right? Like in terms of how it's done, like that it's done skillfully, but very like the the idea the idea is simple. The explanation is convoluted, but the, the idea is simple, and it's it does feel very kind of cinematic, right? Like I remember at the time this show was on, we also had a TV show called Sliders. I don't know if you ever saw Sliders. It was also on. Oh, the yeah. And that was a fun show, but that show, particularly at this point in time, like that 97 uh, to 98 time frame that it was on, or 96 and 97, Sliders was like unabashedly, every single week, it was a ripoff of a different movie. They would jump into, mm-hmm. they'd jump into Mad Max world, or into the world that was like the movie Species, or, you know, the Lost World, Jurassic Park comes out, so the next episode, they're with a dinosaur, you know, it was like every episode was a different shtick. Uh, what I like here is, like you said, it uh, is it's kind of deliverance meets, you know, predator and we just had in season four we had the peacock episode so it's like well how can we do it and do it a little bit differently and i i love that but to me the stuff that is still the the stuff i remember of course is those red creepy eyes right like this is very spooky and Mm. and there's a scene when they pan down under the bed that reminds me of tv show tales from the dark side uh there was an episode tom savini did about a little monster in the closet yes inside the closet Yes, and I remember panning down and seeing that thing's red eyes under the bed, and they do that here, and it's those scenes are equally creepy. Uh, but I love the scene when they're in the woods and she's singing. Uh, well, they're in the woods the whole movie, but you know uh, the whole episode when they're in the woods uh, together and they're they're huddled up and they're not. You know, maybe we aren't going to make it out of this. And she's singing uh, "Joy to the World," <laughs> the three dog <laughs> song to him. One of my favorite X Files moments of all time. And did you notice what he said to her when they're in the hole? And they're finding all these bodies, and they're, how do we get out? And they're stacking the bodies. And he says, come on, Scully, this one's for the honey-baked ham. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Reference back to the <laughs> team-building exercise. Right. Oh. <laughs> I, I totally missed that. I thought a lot of these lines were improvised, and it felt very natural yes. for them to speak that way. Like when he says, she says, have you ever 
thought seriously about dying and he says yeah once at the ice capades yeah i feel like that wasn't written you know i mean it was just sort of like riffed off of and that's the kind of dialogue uh that i i, I it's so endearing as a couple huh. yes i agree the creature makeup was very very cool you're 100 right nathan it was it was very neat to see um, I think I could have done without the Ponce de Leon reference. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't matter to me <laughs> that they were looking for whatever. Um, and, and, uh, Anthony Rapp from Rent. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. I, I feel like this is the last thing we saw him in ever. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But, um. Yeah, it's good. I, the, the Ponce de Leon thing too. It almost felt like the 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 with that weird explanation, and when they bring it in the end, it was almost as much as it was like something to wrap up the episode. It almost felt like it could have easily just been another slag at Mulder, who always has to have some off the wall explanation, right? You know, like mm -hmm. this is the kind of thing that would have been in a Darren Morgan episode where he just comes up with something off the wall, like it's like, oh, it was the Conquistadors. Like those things, I'm pretty sure those things were never human, but whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 100 years allows you to blend in and, and, and make your skin look like bark. Okay, cool. Um, but uh, the, the episode's fun, and I do like the kind of cryptid sensibility to it, and it was a nice sort of departure, uh, I think. So So then the next episode, I think we go in with episode uh, four, which is – or no. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Episode five? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Is that your episode, Dave? Nope. That's mine. <laughs> Take it away. Oh, okay. All right. Well, um, I might, you might want to cut this out, but I, I, I didn't know that we couldn't spoil these. So I'm pretty much. No, no, you can spoil them. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, feel free. I'm going to spoil no, well, the we, shit out of this one. Yeah, spoil the crap out of it. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to say shit. Um, no, no, you're good. You spoil the shit out of it. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So, episode five postmortem Prometheus. Directed, uh, is written and directed by Chris Carter, Monster of the Week episode. Um, now, I am not a X-Files champion like the rest of my cohorts here. So I might be asking a lot of questions as well as giving my insight. But is this the first episode in black and white? Yes, I think. Pretty oh, sure. Well, pretty yeah. sure. Episode, yeah. Might be the only episode in black and white? I believe that is also correct. Ah, <laughs> Wait, me. Who was great. So, yeah. Um, for, well, this is what I wrote about this particular episode. First of all, uh, when Karen reached out to me and I saw that this wasn't chosen, I was so happy. Um, this is this. So this is a surreal comic take on Frankenstein, right? Um, we open up on, I think her name is Shania Berkowitz, which is another amazing name. <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but it's great. And she's watching the Jerry Springer show, and she's not even aware that her home is uh, currently covered in a termite tent. Um, and there's a dark figure that enters the home replaces and places a white cake on a hot skillet, which produces some sort of sedative. Three days later, despite her tubal ligation some years back, she is pregnant. <laughs> And this miracle is never explained. Um, Mulder and Scully arrive in this small rural town to investigate the claims of a monster who are, is sedating and impregnating local women, which is horrifying. Okay, um, that is a that is a theme in here, which is never it, it's well, it's never really expl explained 
correctly as far as I'm concerned. But the episode is filmed in black and white, or at least it's transferred in black and white. Um, it's definitely an homage to the 1931 film classic Frankenstein. It has nods to Risky Business, uh, The Elephant Man. Um, <laughs> and I felt like the combined camera angles um, gave if made it feel like to me like a good old-fashioned gothic horror novel um and so we find out the deeper we dig that uh that this uh creature is named the great mutato and this is played by chris owens he's the product of a scientific experiment by geneticist dr polidari played by John O'Hurley, who seems more like a game show host than a scientist. <laughs> um, and like Frankenstein, at some point in the episode, there's an uproar in town. Folks are brandishing bats and flashlights rather than pitchforks and torches to seek and destroy the monster. At the end of the show, we see Mulder, who breaks the fourth wall and tells Scully that he isn't even happy with the ending. And he needs to speak to the writers. And oddly enough... We cut to see both Mulder, Scully, and the great Mutato kicking it up at a share concert, which, by the way, is another theme throughout this whole episode. Odd, but interesting. Um, both the movie Mask and Share songs are played throughout this whole episode. Um, and I think it's there to make like a storybook ending for it. Um, and I think. Uh, you know, there's certain episodes in all the series that don't live in the reality of the series, um, but have like a dreamlike quality to reality. And this is certainly one of them. Um, I think this is fun. This episode is just great fun. And it gives the writers full autonomy to pretty much allow them to write their own rules of this universe that they're creating um, where anything can happen. Um, like Jose Chung from Outer Space. Yeah. Um, I loved it. Uh, this is one of my favorite episodes ever. Um, and I mean, share, right? <laughs> Which it obviously wasn't really share at the end of the episode, but it's just batshit crazy and fun. And I loved it. And that's kind of what I got. This is such a great episode. It's a very memorable. If it's not, if it's not at the top of someone's list, it's, it's in the top 10 probably. I, yeah. I, uh, I, I, I always, I always wonder, man, how much did it cost to license three separate share, share songs? <laughs> Ask Victor. Uh, yeah, actually, hey, Victor. Yeah. <laughs> Probably pricey, but uh, yeah, this is a really fun, stylized, uh, absurd episode, and it's got so many neat um, little visual jokes in it. I, I don't know if you noticed. At one time early in the episode when they're trying to bait the great mutato they use peanut butter sandwiches his favorite mm -hmm. nice. and he actually gets to take a bite Mulder looks at the sandwich sandwich and so because of the way his fa the, the sandwich has two bites out of it but yeah. it's at impossible angles they're on either side of the bread <laughs> it's crazy and, and um, the so so the scientist John John O'Hurley is a scientist. But his his dad uh, is some sort of farmer scientist as well, and he was experimenting. Or both of them are they both experimenting with animals? I, I, maybe it's both of them. Anyways, I, I feel like there's a scene where it's implied that is everybody in this town 
crossed with an animal because there's there's goats, there's cows, yeah. there's chickens in the room, and and some of the people look and move like the animals in the room. I thought it was really crazy. Crazy. So that's kind of a Island of Doctor Moreau reference. <laughs> we yeah. are not. Are we not men? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, there's some great lines in here too. Um, I wrote some down. Uh, there's a line. Uh, Is there anything you don't believe in? <laughs> and then he says um um like Mulder says uh you know uh, imagine creating life in in his own image and and scully says we already do that it's called procreation (laughs) (laughs) so great and you know at the end they wrap it up with the storybook ending where these women who are obviously uh, you know, in any other, they create this world so that um, this this underlying theme of rape, <laughs> of of of, of uh, drugging and raping women, um, is all okay <laughs> because they wanted the babies anyway. So I thought that was very odd, mm. but yeah, I also. I think when I saw this back then, or maybe I forgot about it, I thought Dr. Polidari was the one doing all that. But watching it this time, I mean, I think it's his dad that's doing it now. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that maybe Dr. Polidari is the one responsible for um, all of the people who look like animals. So, So my reading on that, or at least what I think what the... The, the creature, the Mitato is saying, is that he, the Polidari made him and then yeah. his father Polidari's father was, who then took him in was continually trying to find and make a mate for him. And so like it's not the mm-hmm. far as I can tell. Again, Chan, you're absolutely right. They create this reality in this kind of whimsical, light-hearted universal monsters uh, mishmash in such a way that they just gloss right over what should be absolutely horrifying and insidious in any other X-Files episode, right? So I right, don't know yeah. that it's implied, you know, I don't think it's it's hard because in the beginning it's like, okay, is the Mutado himself raping them? And at the end when there are Mutado babies, it's like, well, is, is that what's implied? Is that finally what the, the father resorted to? But it, what he says is his father, who didn't quite have a handle on the scientists, just kept trying and trying. And so that all of these mm. Uh, town folk who look like animals are a result of the, and then you don't want to, you're like, better not ask how, right? Like, he's thinking, <laughs> like, well, the, the, the science behind that is probably better not explained. It's like in the, in the original Island Dr. Moreau film, The Island of Lost Souls, when they want him to explain how he does it. And he's like, well, you know, Charles Lawton is like, you don't want to know that. Uh, it's a similar kind of deal here. You probably don't want to know that. But uh, some interesting things, I, but you make a, you make a point I can't quite remember. The very, I've seen this episode tons of times. It's one of my favorites, too. And I do think that element's kind of unfortunate because it's it, particularly when we're watching it later, it casts a weird pall on the whole thing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Does the episode be, I know the episode ends this way. Doesn't the episode begin with with the comic book sort of blowing open? I, I, mm-hmm. I don't, Yeah, so it, there is that implication that in some senses this isn't really the X-Files, but rather the X-Files comic book. We're seeing it all seen as, as stylized by, what's her son's name, Izzy? You know, that Izzy. he's written mm-hmm. potentially and illustrated this entire thing. And so this is an X-Files <clears throat> fantasy that it didn't exactly happen this way. But I, it's funny that this is the episode where they do 
give Mulder that line. He says, I'm not sure I believe in that stuff anymore. You know, it's like that one sort of uh, throwaway line that does connect it, you know, to more than the other two episodes to, you know, what's going on with him in, in that larger storyline. But we, you talk about the ad-libbing, and I think Duchovny was ad-libbing the hell out of this season. There's a line <laughs> that they took out of this. It was cut from the final version. He had an ad-lib. You know when the, the waitress dumps coffee in his lap? Like when everyone's mad at him because they think he's debunked the mutato. Uh, he when she throws the coffee slap, he originally said, "Why'd you go do that for?" Now my crotch is going to be up all night. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so they they cut that line. Oh man, I wish they left that in. That's hilarious. <laughs> Worse than is that how you beat yourself? I mean, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like. There's an episode later where uh, one of the ones I'm talking about, there he's clearly watching porn. It's, yep. I don't yeah, see what's, yeah. that's not a big deal. Uh, also, this episode was nominated for seven Emmy Awards and it only really? won one, but yeah, that's crazy. I mean, maybe it's not. I don't watch a lot of the Emmys. A lot of, maybe a lot of shows get nominated that much, but one episode, that's, that's that seems impressive. Yeah. And, yeah. and breaking the fourth wall literally just shows you that, okay, now I'm going to break down the reality of this and talk yeah, directly to you. Yeah the writers and say, I, I don't like this ending, write another ending. And he brings in Izzy, who, who's the kid who's writing. He's like, give me the writer. So I like, uh, I liked all that. The interesting thing is uh, Cher was actually an X-Files fan. And they, they, they wrote that role. Obviously, they wrote the role. They wrote her in so she could play herself. But at the <laughs> time, she was like, ah, it's kind of tacky. I don't but when she saw the episode, she said she regretted not actually being in it you know uh Good. being, in, being so, in there herself i remember that, that, when yeah that that's happened. the answer to how they got the share songs at a reasonable yes. price she, she, <laughs> exactly she right. leaned was, on the record label yeah yeah, yeah. so it the happens. other interesting thing it's that uh shana berkowitz originally they had written that role and they'd offered it to roseanne barr who turned it down oh, oh i kind of think it's better without roseanne yeah <laughs> yeah she but, she might be like is it in an episode like this is it possible to say she would be too big? Yes. Like play it too, you know what I mean? Like yes. it's just no. crazy well, to think that yeah. you could overact this episode. But that actress was perfect. The things that oh, she she's said, great. Yeah. you can't plant yeah. seed in a barren field. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which also is never explained at all. <laughs> she's you no, know, right. no, they untied her tubes apparently, and yeah. and mm-hmm. did it that way. And then when she says share, you know, the one married to Sunny, in case, <laughs> in case you were confusing her with the other shares. <laughs> they did get Jerry Springer though. You know, they couldn't get Share. They couldn't get Roseanne. They got Jerry Springer. <laughs> that must have been a Fox show. Jerry Springer, because yeah, they're yeah. always showing Fox shows on. I here. like how the town gets mad when the the FBI is no longer thinking that this isn't like newsworthy anymore. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The whole diner chain uh, turns on him. Yep. JJ's. That's with two J's. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, a great episode. It really is. It really is. I I still think it holds up because in the beginning yeah. they do. I mean, they mention that it's a crime what's happening, and then they don't go into detail about hey, maybe this is medically being done somewhere else. Who knows? Yeah, I th- what I think is interesting is that you know Chris Carter has directed very few X Files episodes. You know, honestly, like in the in the ultimate run of the show, 
What I think is neat here or interesting is it feels like this is him wanting to take a stab at that Darren Morgan or Glenn Morgan type of episode, right? You know, that yeah. uh, that all these other guys have got a chance to do it. And he's like, you know, there's got to be a point, part of him that's thinking, man, you know, I'd like to take a crack at this. And honestly, I would have probably before this been like, yeah, maybe Chris don't do that. But he, he nailed it. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, this was interesting. Yeah. It's like uh, I thought at first it was directed by James Gunn or something. But <laughs> yeah, it's got it's got that sensibility. I think that I haven't very rarely in the series have I seen Carter be able to navigate all this. But I think maybe his love of Frankenstein helps him through it. You know, it's a postmodern Prometheus. It's not the modern Prometheus, and uh, everything that kind of goes into it here, you can kind of trace back to that universal sensibility. It's a beautiful looking episode too, though the way that they use. Mm-hmm the black and white and the share songs and every other piece of it. And I love John O'Hurley. <laughs> yes. The, oh. the mad doctor, like the way they frame his face. And it's like, why did you do that? Because I could. Mm-hmm. Yes. All of my notes start out. Jay Peterman. I mean, Dr. Yes. Frankenstein. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. Dr. Polidari. <laughs> but yeah, but if you go, if you go back to the universal monster movies, um, the, the mad scientists in those often do look, like uh, game show hosts they do yes, yes. all shot from low angles upwards mm-hmm. you know he even steps into the climbing. shot a little bit you know <laughs> so he can be there um yeah <laughs> but uh yeah there's a lot of great stuff going on in in that episode and it uh again like we've just named three standalone episodes that i think are some of the best standalone episodes that the x-files has done and they're all of a different type and a variety. So I think that that element of, hey, we really have to plan this out and, you know, kind of fine tune it up to this point was working quite well. So the next episode is Christmas Carol. And I think this is yours, Karen. Is that right? It is. I Christmas Carol and Emily are it's like a two parter. And I I have both of them. Um, and when you look at these two, they're they're definitely part of the mythology and normally those are like my least favorite episodes to watch. I don't normally care for the mythology episodes. And when I go back and rewatch just to rewatch, I'll usually skip them. But this one I watch because I feel like it's more about the characters and Scully in particular. Um, It's, it's, more than just the conspiracy and the mythology. It's a really emotionally driven story for Scully. And I love that we got to focus on her for two episodes. Um, Both of them were written by Vince Gilligan, John Chabon and Frank Spotnitz. And in Christmas Carol, the title obviously from a Christmas Carol, and I guess she sort of does get visited by a ghost in it. And, um, they do go to her past with some flashbacks to her childhood with her sister, Melissa and her brother, Bill. Um, But it starts out the episode with Scully and her mom going to visit her brother, Bill and very pregnant sister-in-law. I think her name's Tara um, in San Diego over the Christmas holiday. And right off the bat, there's a little awkwardness, maybe tension for Scully um, and I think it's a combination of Melissa's not there for one thing because she was murdered. And then all this talk about babies and Scully has only really recently found out that she can't have children. Um, and pretty much almost right when she gets there, Scully answers a phone call and the voice says she needs your help. And I'm pretty sure 
that the person on that phone call had to have been the actress that played her sister. Cause I, it sounded just like her sister, Melissa. And somehow Scully knows the phone number to the San Diego field office and she gets the call traced. Um, she shows up to the location where the call came from and it's a crime scene where this woman has uh, apparently killed herself. Uh, nobody there knows how the call could have been placed. Um, when Scully sees the daughter of this woman, she looks exactly like her sister Melissa did when she was a kid. And between the phone call and kind of seeing this little girl, Scully cannot let go of it. Um, she also kind of suspects there's something more going on and involves herself with the San Diego Police Department. Um, she finds out that Emily was adopted and she uh, starts to suspect that her sister, Melissa, was Emily's birth mother. So she also starts to suspect that the girl's adoptive father may have killed her mother. Um, and now you would think like her having her family around her would be comforting. Um, you know, Scully getting to spend the holidays with her mom and her brother, but no. First of all, they put Scully up in the nursery, and I kind of wanted at least her mother to offer to switch rooms with her, but that pales in comparison to the way her brother treats her. He's mad that she's taking time away from their family to try and solve a murder, but it's when he pulls her aside and asks if she can give him a hand in the kitchen that I was like, oh, here we go. Um, he starts talking about how she's trying to fill some emptiness or void inside her. So he must know uh, that she can't have kids. Um, if my brother talked to me like that, I would be so upset. Um, and I don't know why her whole family is like dead set against the idea that this could be Melissa's daughter. Um, Bill even tries to show her this photo with a date stamp on the back of it to prove it couldn't be her, which the date stamp just proves the day the picture was developed. It doesn't, it doesn't really prove anything else. Um, there's another few moments like the medical examiner calls her Miss Scully. And I wanted to say that's Dr. Scully. Thank you very much. Um, and there's another scene with the social worker who tells her that uh, she wouldn't qualify as a foster parent um, because she's not married and she loves her job, I guess. Um, <laughs> And it's not totally clear, I think, um, at this point that this is a mythology episode. Um, but there's a few hints, like there's some men in cars, in a car that keeps showing up. Um, uh, Scully thinks they might be following her. And Emily has this mysterious condition that she's getting experimental treatment for from this Dr. Calderon. Um, and then in the finale of this part... Uh, which takes place, place on Christmas, Scully receives a full DNA report, which at first uh, seemed to confirm that she was Emily's mother, or that she, Melissa was Emily's mother, but now confirms that Dana Scully is actually Emily's mother. So I remember being very surprised by that uh, when that first aired. Um, and before I go to part two, so what did y'all think of the first one? An immaculate conception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really yeah. I like, like, oh, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to just reiterate Karen's point. The, uh, the the whammy at the end was, I think I was just, I just said, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> now it's that. That's it. Yeah, very Karen, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's a very good synopsis. Like that was, um, I, I don't, I, I'm not used to watching. I watched everything from season five and I feel like I was mainlining like, <laughs> <laughs> this whole week because I'm, I wanted to be um, just, I wanted to be able to like run with this crowd. And, um, and I, it brought me back every single step of the way, Karen, that was a perfect synopsis of the episode. You had a short time to get them all in. I did. I was sweating. <laughs> so many. Yeah. And this I agree with you, Karen, that I really like this two parter. And typically I'm not uh when we were when we were considering contemplating picking the episodes, those are two that stood out to me too. It's like, wow, I really remember this. And I think one of the things that's cool about these two is they really do without without it having a lot of contrivance. They really, particularly this first one, it does capture that kind of Christmas feeling. It does feel like a Christmas episode, even though it's relatively downbeat, right? Like, like particularly this first one that it there's not a lot of happy stuff going on, and that mm-hmm. family sort of awkwardness. And gosh, her brother just keeps, you know, uh, they I, they seem so pointed in making him look like a you know just a jackass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, particularly here and it's like it, it, it's cluelessness but it seems to go beyond it and it's just like it's very interesting you're like where is this character going are we are we building up to something or is it just the idea that you know some people are just always going to be a jackass and, you know that, that that basic level of a, of a sibling that just doesn't quite get you and has no intention of ever really doing anything about it you know uh but i love the 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 way that they get, she gets that phone call. I like that they have a. It's kind of a nod to, you know, obviously the title is a nod to Christmas Carol. But then you all, you have uh, the the Emily's adoptive family is Sim, is the Sims, which Alistair Sim is in one of the most famous Scrooge uh, adap- or Christmas Carol ab- adaptations, uh, where he played Scrooge. So I thought that was kind of neat. There were a couple of other little things there, but really, I think it's Jillian Anderson across these two episodes. This is some of her strongest work as scully i think i think that's why this these two part this two part stands out because it does tie to the mythology and again here's the interesting ways to find ways to tie it to the mythology and to that government meddling and the government conspiracy that you mentioned earlier shannon without tipping the hat to aliens and making it so poignant and effective i think across both stories So we can move on to part two if you want to, uh, Karen, for uh, okay. Emily. So Emily, and then somewhere else it showed up for me as the X in the file. So I don't know if there was a different name for this or it was just on the website that I happened to to check on. But I'm pretty sure the second episode's called Emily. Um, my first thought when this episode started was finally Mulder's here. <laughs> the one person <laughs> who has her back. Um, finally, she's got some support after her own family just seems kind of like a big disappointment. And Mulder was adorable with Emily. His Mr. Patea head <laughs> impression was spot on. Um, and he could tell right away that um, Scully's attached. 
Um, you can tell he's worried. He thinks she's in danger because Mulder thinks the same people who abducted Scully are responsible for creating Emily and everything else that's happening right now, including the death of now both of her parents. Um, and Mulder even speaks to the judge on Scully's behalf about her adopting her, um, even though he thinks that's going to put her in more danger. Um, and in that testimony, Scully finds out that Mulder has suspected all along, I guess, that the experiments that experience, experiments were done on her when she was abducted, and that's what made it impossible for her to have kids, and he didn't tell her because he thought he was protecting her. Um, and then Emily starts to get sicker, and without having this experimental treatment, um, they don't really know what to do. She's got this little thing on the back of her neck which looks familiar to us um, and when they try to do a biopsy it acts just like those shapeshifter people when they get stabbed with the ice pick and that toxic green substance comes out and makes the people sick that were in that room um, Mulder in maybe a not so great move <laughs> starts beating up the Dr. Calderon to try to get him to help Emily um, and then he ends up following him back where he meets with those same guys that have been following Scully and they kill him. And then both of them shapeshift to him into him. So we know, obviously it's definitely part of the mythology now. Um, and he finds more stuff while he's investigating. He finds the green liquid that they've been treating Emily with. And I guess another live embryo of Scully's. They don't really say anything after that. I think that's what that's supposed to be. Um, and Scully stays with Emily, but her diagnosis is pretty grim and whatever they keep injecting her with, um, it's apparently keeping her alive, but also killing her. Um, and so when Mulder finally gets back to Scully, he's got this treatment in his pocket but Scully says, you know, even if I had it, I wouldn't treat her anymore. She's just in so much pain. So we're going to let her go because uh, she just wasn't meant to be. Um, so that happens. And then at the end, we are at Emily's funeral. And um, Scully wants to ride back to the house with Mulder because her family's terrible. Um, <laughs> even though he shows up, I think, after everybody else is leaving. And they have a kind of a sweet moment where he says at least she found Emily so that she could kind of be with her at the end. Um, and he tells her, hey, you know, all the evidence, everything to prove all of this is gone. And Scully says, well, you know, there's one more piece of evidence, Emily. But when she opens the casket, um, Emily's gone. And all that's left are sandbags and her cross necklace that she had given to her. Um, there were a lot of mixed reviews about these episodes. There were a lot of people that didn't like them. Um, they didn't like the whole premise of Scully finding and having a kid. And maybe for people who do like the mythology stuff, maybe this was too sentimental. I don't know. Um, but overall, because it is so Scully centric and, the way Mulder supports her throughout this whole arc, uh, especially the second part of this episode, um, I really liked them. Um, the second 
certainly more than the first, but this is one of the few mythology ones that I just would not skip over. I always watch it. Yeah, I I agree, Karen. And the thing is, with the, all the other mythology episodes, the way I feel, I enjoy them, but it's like, we learn a bunch of stuff, the agents are in danger, then they're not in peril, and then the information goes away, right? And it's just rinse and repeat. And sometimes we learn cool things, and that's fine. But this had some dramatic stakes to it. There were things here that happened to Scully that are, uh, you know, there's a permanence to them, and emotionally, they can't be taken away by the fact that, oh, we've, we've wiped all the secrets under the rug at the end of the episode. So to, to me, this is one of the better mythology two-parters, I think. Well, it's certainly, it is certainly emotional, especially since we've, you know, obviously we're all fans of this show. And if you're watching at this point, you've come to really care about Scully and Mulder and she's going through a lot. Uh, Jillian Anderson is really great in these two. Um, I do fall on the, on the uh, side of, of the fans who, th- these aren't my favorite. There's a little, there's about three or, yeah, three or so episodes here that are, are, on the on the lower rated side of this season, which is still a great season, um, it, yeah, these these are just not not my particular cup of tea. I I can't remember why Mulder finds medical records of Scully's in a nursing home. Why was that? It was the name that Anna Fugazi name they yeah. traced her to that nursing home. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then it showed supposedly that all these women who were, I don't know how old they were supposed to be, but they were supposed to have had babies. Yeah. Did it imply that, that elderly people were being impregnated? I think it was just implying. Yeah. That they, they were the baby's birth mothers, which clearly they were not. Okay. Got it. Yeah, I was looking at a website that provided a lot of, like, point out that the dates are all over the place when it comes to this episode. Like, when people hand uh, hand over, like, the uh, the results of tests and x-rays and stuff, like, the dates on them are, like, October when it should be December. And, you know, oh. they make references to things from Scully's past. And it's like, well, we give you this necklace here, but see it happening there. So there's a lot of that stuff. I don't care about any of that stuff. But I have... <laughs> A legitimate question, and I don't think this one is necessarily not answered, but I just don't know if we're meant to think very deeply on it. Uh, because where the episode goes, there there is a very logical explanation. Well, uh, maybe not logical for the X-Files. There's a logical explanation of, of, of how Emily came to be, who she potentially belongs to, things like that, or, or, or uh, what her origin was. But who made the phone call to Scully? The ghost of her sister. Yeah, so I, and I, I mean, that's the way I take it. But, you know, oftentimes with the X Files, where they always want to leave that ambiguity, like, mm. it, it, were we supposed to think anything else? And I kept wondering, okay, is there supposed to be something else? And we never really get that. I don't need that. I'm fine. You know, okay, it's the ghost or it's, you know, something supernatural. But I, unless I miss something, there is never any sort of solution to that, right? That's just left to no. the ghost. Not at all. No solution okay. at all. Does Emily ever come back? In any other episodes? Not that I'm aware, but I... No. And you know, I read that they had a completely different actress yeah, <laughs> playing Emily out. 
And she did the whole first episode. And then when they tried to put her in the machine, like the pet scan or cat scan machine, she freaked out and couldn't do it. And they had to reshoot the whole, all the scenes with this new actress. Yeah. Like he was like the guy who did it. The executive was like, I might be the worst thing I ever done in the business, but I recast the part. But the little girl was so frightened and was becoming kind of like traumatized and they couldn't calm her down to film it. So they were like, okay, we can't, we can't do it. So it's when it, it was particularly the stuff in the hospital. So um, I really like the opening of this too, because it's usually Mulder that gets the big like existential, you know, speeches. Yes. <laughs> and, and Scully gets that, in that kind of weird kind of cool Enya music Dreamy. video looking thing where she's wandering through the desert, you know, that's kind of neat. But uh, yeah, so to me, for for me, this this was this was solid. It continued the the season streak. And the next episode is Kitsunagari. Who had that episode? That was me too. <laughs> Karen, you got them I, all um, one one, sw- one. Yeah, time. there's three all together. I was surprised this one was one of the ones left too. Um, this was uh, yeah, Kitsunagari, written by Vince Gilligan and Tim Minear. Um, and now we're back to my favorite kind of episode, which is the Monster of the Week episode. And there are some monsters that are so good, they have to be brought back a second time. Uh, like Victor Toombs, my favorite Donnie Faster, and now uh, Robert Modell, or Pusher. Um, not to mention in this episode, we get a fabulous guest star with Diana Scarwood. I, about, I don't think anyone can see her without thinking of mommy dearest where she played uh, Christina Crawford. Mm-hmm. Um, but the episode uh, starts out at a Virginia prison infirmary where Robert Modell, who's supposed to be like comatose and near death is doing some physical therapy. And next thing you know, he's whispering to one of the orderlies and before you know it, boom, he's escaped. Um, so Skinner, Mulder and Scully show up along with a bunch of U.S. Marshals. And uh, Mulder and Scully explain how Modell likes to have a worthy opponent. Um, but when Mulder, when Mulder warns the Marshals about his ability to force his will on others or push them, of course, they don't believe him. Um, and Scully is worried that Modell's going to go after Mulder again since he was kind of his target before. And they sort of play like a similar cat and mouse kind of game this episode with Modell, although this time he does seem a little bit different. Uh, First of all, he doesn't kill any of the law enforcement people, I don't think. Um, And the person who does end up getting murdered is the U.S. attorney who prosecuted Modell. And at the crime scene where this attorney died from drinking blue paint which was really gross there's a moment when scully opens his mouth and a bunch of paint just glops out (laughs) and you could even see like the actor twitch a little bit in that scene where he was supposed to be dead i would have twitched too um anyway painted all over the walls there's this symbol it's a word in japanese uh kitsunagari which means fox hunt so now of course they all think uh, modell is after Mulder again and then it appears that the attorney's wife, Linda, is Modell's next target. Um, they're able to find and kind of rescue Linda, uh, played 
by Diana Scarwood, but not before Modell manages to get Mulder alone. And we don't get to see what he tells him uh, before he escapes again, but we think he's possibly gotten into Mulder's head. Um, And when they interview Linda, Mulder thinks something's off and he tells them he doesn't know how they're connected, but she's the one who killed her husband and not Modell. So uh, now Scully and Skinner both think that Modell obviously got to Mulder. Um, They pull him off the case. Skinner suspends him, but Mulder vows to prove that he's right. Um, And in the meantime, we see Linda at some point using the same power that Modell has. So she pushes her way into the hospital. Um, She visits Modell, who had gotten shot... um, And, you know, they have a moment between the two of them and she's got like tears in her eyes. She's lovingly telling him that he's in no pain as he's dying. So these two are obviously connected. Um, And Mulder follows this evidence that leads him back to a warehouse from earlier. And he's confronted by Scully who pulls a gun on him. And Scully tells him he was right all along. Linda is actually controlling her. Um, So at first you think, oh, this is like the opposite of what happened in Pusher. Now it's Scully who's under someone's control instead of Mulder. Um, And Scully kind of begs him to to make Linda stop. And then she turns the gun on herself and fires, seemingly killing herself. Um, And Mulder runs to her, totally devastated. And then Linda shows up. So he grabs Scully's gun um, and turns it on Linda, but Linda keeps telling him, no, Mulder, it's me. I'm Scully. And she's trying to convince him it's really her by saying, hey, your mother's Tina, your sister's Samantha. Uh, She tells him that the real Linda is actually standing behind him. She's pushing him and she wants him to shoot her because she knows he'll never forgive himself. And there's this kind of tense standoff and, Finally, the woman who appears to be Linda fires and Mulder gets to see that it actually is Scully and she shot Linda who was behind him the whole time. Um, And we do find out that Modell and Linda were twins, I guess, like separated at birth. Um, Both of them suffering from the same brain tumor that allowed them to have this ability. Um, And when Linda found out about Modell, obviously she did her research, uh, put this whole elaborate revenge plan into place. She married the attorney, visited him in jail, and she probably would have read the file and known that back in the, the last episode when Modell faced Mulder and Scully the first time, Mulder was actually able to push back a little. Like when Modell tried to make him fire his gun at Scully when they were playing that game around the table. Um, Mulder was able to hesitate long enough for for Scully to pull that fire alarm um, that broke the spell. And I think Linda knew um, the only way she was going to get Mulder to kill Scully, uh, which was obviously her plan was if he didn't know it was Scully that he was aiming at. Um, I liked this episode. I liked the little twist at the end. Um, I'm not sure back when I saw this the first time, I don't think I expected that. I don't think that I knew that that was coming. Um, This one may not be as good as pusher, 
but I really, really liked it. Um, and so I'm curious how you guys think this compared to the first one, the pusher episode. Well, listening to you recount it, it has gone up a bit for me, but I, I didn't think it was as good as the first episode with pusher. I really love the ending scene when Mulder's being pushed. Um, but I, I, I thought that uh, the, 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 the push like model pusher was uh, a scarier and creepier than his sister. So I, I thought the first episode worked better for me. Yeah. Also uh, just to David's point, um, it, you know, in the first, like the first act of pusher, it's really cool not knowing exactly what the power is and seeing how the pusher character uses it. Um, and you're kind of like, Oh, what is that? Uh, and in Kasunigari, he doesn't, he doesn't really, they don't really explain it much except in dialogue. Um, so you're kind of missing what I like best about pusher in this episode, but that said, it's still not that bad. I, th- I gave it a 7.5 out of 10. So there you go. And Oh yeah. The other thing <laughs> there, there is, um, a sequence at the end of Kitsunigari where um, I, I, once again, I, I'm just like poor Skinner, man, because yeah. Mulder is the worst employee. <laughs> like, tries to, he is the yeah. worst. He, I mean, Skinner always tries to help him, including like getting into physical altercations and stuff. And Mulder just like goes, bah, no good. And he storms out and stuff. And, and uh, I was just like, man, uh, if he wasn't such a great FBI agent, <laughs> he would be so fired. <laughs> yeah, he's like trying to praise him at the end of this episode, which I really like that scene. He's like, look, you had to figure out. I was like, no, no, I feel yeah. horrible. <laughs> it's like so moody. <laughs> uh, I saw this episode. When I saw this episode, I had not seen Pusher, so everything seemed a little fresh to me. <laughs> I knew that he was a character they had encountered before, but uh, so I enjoyed it. I, but seeing it in, in regards to pusher, I think everything you've said is correct is that it essentially is a rehash. It's entertaining enough, but to me, this is one of the episodes that feels like filler. It's not a bad episode, but it's sort of like we, they, they, it's not that when they brought tombs back, they didn't sort of do the same thing again, but there were a lot of things about tombs in this, in the follow episode that made him scarier. And there was that whole kind of plot line that showing the frustration with the justice system, where they're going to let this thing back out to do what he was doing again, that added some nuances there. Now the nuance that's intended here with the sister being the primary uh, quote unquote villain of the piece is not ju- it just isn't as interesting as Modell on his kind of freaky, scary, like uh, what he was doing in the first time through. And it, as Victor points out, the mystery was there. There's not as much mystery here, but it's still a fine episode. It's not bad. It's just not at the same level. Whereas I feel like the tomb sort of one-two punch of that character. Uh, now, to be fair, they were in closer proximity to one another, but the one-two punch of that character was a, was more uh, interesting. Uh, and, and it felt more of a piece with itself. Yes. Okay, so now we get to arguably the best episode of the season. Just kidding. <laughs> all our, I picked it and I'll argue it. <laughs> Sk- like, wait, what? <laughs> Skizogeny. Uh, this is your Shizigeny. episode. Skizogeny. Skizogeny. Yeah, Yeah, blah, Perfect. 
Uh, well, anyways, I guess that's a good segue. I, I did mention I, uh, this is one of the episodes I chose. Uh, and I'll be honest, I, I chose it because Victor chose Detour. We're going to talk about all of them. And I insisted on having one with uh, the wilderness of my beautiful country in it. So this only left me with this episode. So uh, I'm, I'm going to read the uh, the description from IMDb here. Sculler, uh, Sculler. Scully and Mulder investigate the death of a man who seems to have been buried alive. The main suspect is the man's stepson because the two of them had an argument the evening the man died. The autopsy reveals the dead man had over 12 pounds of dirt in his stomach, and it's obvious that he was buried alive. What's not so obvious is how the stepson could have done it. When a second parent is killed, this time after an argument with his daughter, the FBI agents begin to believe there is something far more sinister going on, especially after the counselor tells them both of the children were being abused. So uh, I guess I already tipped my hand here. This isn't this isn't one of the stronger episodes of the season or the the, the series, but uh, in saying that, I'm going to start with a few things that I thought worked and I really liked. I, I like the the atmospheric way that the the outdoor, uh, especially at night, is really moodily shot. Um, I, I again, I like that it's out in the woods. Um, I it's kind of a it's, it's, it's a style of filming this show that's not going to be. I'm not going to be around anymore after this season. So um, it's near and dear to my heart. And I I do like that this, this is like, it's a really high concept story. And um, as all, like everybody is, is on top of their game trying really hard. The acting is great. The direction is great. It's just, it's not the most compelling story. I, I I think it's a little slow and, and I hope dull is not too harsh, but I also think, even even though Catherine Isabel, who I really like, is in this, I think the teen mm-hmm. actors they're they're not great. Uh, this maybe, you know, Catherine Isabel is great now. I I really like her in a lot of stuff, but she's she's as wooden as the trees in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I also find it a little confusing the motivation that the that Doctor Redman has, and and also it's a little vague as to exactly what's going on is this a story of possession or trauma infusing nature with power or or is it uh, like a mutant ability um or um yeah it's it's a little unclear um but basically it's 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 a story of trauma and abuse uh manifesting killer trees uh, any any anybody else got any any more positive things to spin this with Nope, nailed it. Okay. <laughs> Killer trees. Yeah. Well, there's a positive to they do go back to Canada for the last two seasons. Oh, do they? Oh, great. I, I haven't the, seen that. The, the the reboot is in Canada. Yeah. So that, oh, wow, that's, great. So, you will so you'll, you'll have some more forest. Yeah. Our, our low dollar and cheap tax bracket wins out again. Yes. <laughs> you lured them back. I thought the location... The orchard was just stunning. Yes. I mean, beautiful. Um, yeah. And what a moody location, perfect for to create that look, tone, and feel of. Um, I mean, it just feels scary. You know, that one shot where they're looking down and the trees are all create this sort of like uh, cave, and at the end there's a light and a, a lone silhouette. It was beautiful. 
Um, but yeah, I agree with you, David. It felt like the motivation was a stretch. You know, this psychiatrist, she's manifesting her telekinetic powers with the roots of trees to help wayward children or it felt a little bit of a stretch, but um, no, I enjoyed it. That visual image is the main thing I remember uh, that you were, uh, Dave, you mentioned and, and Shan, you mentioned too, of, of the tree sort of curving in to kind of form, form this circular like tunnel and the, mm -hmm. seeing the figure at the end of them, which again kind of harkens back to the universal horror movies and the imagery. And the imagery is cool. And it'd be a horrible thing to uh, die sucking, you know, the, the the earth into your in, into your lungs uh would be would be pretty awful uh, not the most awful way people died on the x-files but awful nonetheless um i did note that you know you have Catherine isabel and um and i can't think of the actor who plays the um the boy who's initially accused of killing his father yeah and then they both end up later on a supernatural so that was it's, uh, chad Lindbergh. chad Lindbergh. yeah he ends up on uh, supernatural later on too I did, around i think the same time Catherine isabel only had a, a short stint there but um yeah you we've mentioned many times that the uh x files like you see a certain episode and you'll say you know what i bet that that was a totally unrelated script that they pulled out of a drawer somewhere and sort of decided to make it an x file episode this feels like a totally unrelated script that they found somewhere. And then when they pulled it out to make it, they realized they only had half a script. <laughs> Some guy's like, let me go write this real quick. And Psycho mm -hmm. and happened to be on in the background. And then he was like, check out a great idea uh, or her. <laughs> and then they finished it. And I'm, you know, so I, I, that's why I think it's schizogeny, right? That there's the, the progeny aspect of like, you know, it's her, uh, there's a relational thing, but then she's manifesting in her mind. But then what, the, what do the supernatural powers have to do with anything? It's just so uh, slapdash is, is what it feels like to me. I'm a huge fan of this season, but this isn't a, a, a bomb, in my opinion. That's how you say it. Skinogeny. 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 Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so then we move on, and our next episode is Chinga, which, of course, the big thing at the time was that this was the Stephen King episode. You know, uh, who has Chinga? I've got this one as well. Oh, awesome. And this one I really liked. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Stephen King, that's my first note. Boy, it takes place in Maine. Who else is going to write this episode, right? So while on a weekend off in the small New England town of Amos Beach, Maine, Scully comes across a grocery store full of people who tried to gouge out their own eyes. <laughs> the people have no idea why they did this to themselves. On the telephone, Mulder tells her it all sounds like witchcraft, but she isn't so sure. Uh, one woman in the store, Melissa Turner, seemed unaffected by it, but her reputation for being a witch works against her. She was widowed the year before, and her boyfriend Dave stabbed himself in the eye and died in the grocery store incident. Uh, Scully focuses on Melissa's daughter, and in particular, the young girl's doll. Well, that's the IMDb's description of it. That's pretty pretty much what's going on, except it doesn't really give you the tone. Uh, this this is another slightly humorous episode, and and it, it just works for me. There's a lot of a lot of cool stuff in this. The the guest actress. Um, the, the the actress who plays Melissa is Susanna Hoffman, and uh, she's she's not the she's a big actress up here in Canada. I don't know if you guys have seen her in a lot of stuff, but she was in a, a couple of Friday the Thirteenth the series and uh, mm. 
a, a cheesy old movie. I like the brain and, and a bunch of other Canadian stuff. I, I had a crush on her when I was a teenager. So I always <laughs> remembered this episode. And then there's, there's another actor in here. Um, I wanted to mention Larry Muser or Musser. He plays the sheriff. This is his fourth appearance on the X-Files and the third time as a sheriff. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> He's so bad. He keeps getting fired. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't he the bleeping guy, Detective Manners? I, I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. In the, bleeping um, aliens. <laughs> yeah, in the uh, Jose Chung's Jose Chung. Yep. Right, yes, yes. Right. I can picture him bleeping, but I couldn't remember what episode it was from. <laughs> He's just like sheriff out of like central casting. Yeah. <laughs> and that, uh, so th- this one has got a really cool cold open. The, 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 uh, the little description here mentioned the, the bloodbath in the, in the uh, grocery store. Y- you really, you, you don't know what's going on when this episode opens. It's super, well, not super mysterious. You just, you just, you just could have no idea of what, where this is going to go, but it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a creepy scene where everybody starts freaking out and, and, gouging themselves you don't know that they're just gouging their eyes out it looks like they're really killing themselves and you have just a, a little hint of of what's going on with the, with the the daughter and the doll is this like like an annabelle doll or, or a possessed kind of chucky doll eventually you do find out but it it that that opening scene i thought was really creepy and well done and uh this is a, a light an episode that's light on Mulder. he's probably doing reshoots for the movie but the interactions, they talk on the phone quite a few times, and Scully and Mulder's interactions on the phone are hilarious. <laughs> she, uh, of course, Mulder, again, as soon as he hears any info on the case, he jumps to every possible conclusion you can think Mulder would jump to, and Scully basically ends up rolling her eyes and hanging up on him a few times. And he just comes off, though. He, Scully mentions a few times that she, she literally says the same line over and over, I'm on vacation. But he is he is just lost, lonely, and bored without her. He's constantly ha- harassing her with these phone calls. It's hilarious. And, the, and she has a good... Uh, she actually has a, an interesting dynamic with the sheriff because usually in the episodes, Scully, uh, Mulder's got the lead and, and Scully is kind of following along and supporting. But here she's kind of the lead investigator and she is the one with all the info. And the sheriff is, is letting her take the lead and uh, really appreciative of, of her help, actually. And then uh, he, they have a lot of, they, between the two of them, she keeps saying how she's on vacation too, which is funny. And he'll remind her too, well, aren't you on vacation? Oh, yeah. But the, the case is too, it's too interesting to pass up what's going on here. Um, and the, the doll, of course, the, it's another creepy kid's doll. I find those ceramic dolls always kind of give me the creeps anyways. So it's great when they use them. And uh, it, it also this, this episode it makes me feel good about our, our decision not to have kids because clearly they're all evil and they're going to get you. Was it the kid or was it the doll? Oh well, the, the, the kid had the doll. The kid. Yeah, you good point. Unless you're a doll collector and you, know, you don't have a kid, then you can't doll. <laughs> Fair enough, Dave. Well played. Uh, um, it, and it does have a, it's got a really, for being a humorous episode, the, the, the final, the conclusion is really tense and, and harrowing. I mean, there's a, you know the mom has got a hammer and 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 is hitting herself in the face. It's it's really awful. I mean, if 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 Scully didn't it didn't intercede, like what kind of traumatic scarring would it, would it leave? You know, you 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 assisted or you somehow enabled your mom to smash herself in the face to death with a hammer. Just awful. Yes. Um, 
So yeah, I, I guess I really like this episode, even even though I, I I don't think it's witchcraft at all. It, it's it's from the from the the scene at the, the very very last scene on the boat. I, I guess it it is some sort of possessed doll. Some dolls are just bad. It's, 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 <laughs> just made that way. Yeah, just exactly. born bad. Exactly like, right. right. Isn't, that, isn't that what Tiffany says in in the Bride of Chucky? I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know the funny thing. This episode, when I saw it in 1998, because I think this was now January, the uh, I remember being disappointed. I think because of the Stephen King element, right? And I was expecting to see something. You know, Stephen King gets to play in the world of the X Files. And he does a possessed doll, you know, and I'm sort of like, oh, okay. I mean, and, 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 and for the perspective being, you know, I saw he wrote a short story once about a little uh, monkey, about the little monkey with the symbols. And every time it clapped, it would, it would kill things. At one point they throw it into the ocean and it's clearly clapping because dead fish are rising to the surface. That kind of thing is even kind of cooler, I think, than what's happening here. But going back to the episode, I do really enjoy it. And an interesting thing, you notice that Chris Carter and Stephen King have the writing credit on this. Uh, and what happened is Stephen, we've talked about this, how like some writers, uh, they, there's clearly a story and then you you wonder about the Mulder and Scully parts because they don't seem strongly written or sometimes they're out of character. Uh, Stephen King kept sending drafts of this script, submitting them because he and Chris Carter, they never, they didn't meet when they did the episode. He kind of kept sending them in. And I think, the issue was they kept finding that the interaction between Mulder and Scully, which you point out here, like those phone calls are some of the best stuff in the episode. That stuff kept getting revised. And eventually, uh, Chris Carter kind of took the script and he worked primarily on the interactions between Mulder, Mulder and Scully. So yeah. I think that's also creates that dichotomy between the horror stuff. That makes which, sense. Which is pretty intense. And then the Mulder and Scully stuff, which I mean, there's a, uh, one of my favorite interactions is when she's saying, well, it sounds like witch witchcraft. And then, you know, she says, but I don't think it, he says, it sounds like witchcraft. She says, I don't think it is. And he's like, well, maybe you don't know what you're looking for. And then she goes into like that whole laundry list. She's like, actually, I, ha- I have that here. Yeah. She's like evidence of conjury or the black arts yeah. or shamanism, divination, Wicca, or any kind of <laughs> yep. pagan or neo-pagan practice, charms, Mary cards, familiars, bloodstones, hex signs, or any other ritual tableau associated with the occult sanitaria, voodoo, macumba, or any of the high or low magic. <laughs> Then, All forms now known or hereafter devised. <laughs> and then he just says, he stopped her, says Scully. And she says, yes. And he says, marry me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is, and then let me have to talk because the, despite all the horrendous crap that goes down this episode, the, the, the thing that sticks in my mind is when she calls him and she's like, what are you watching? And you hear, like, <laughs> yeah. and you hear this clearly, like, like a man and a woman panting in the background and yeah. then they even show like the cassette tape and it says alien probe on it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sounds about right the thing that's <laughs> most confounding is later like as that scene is ending and he goes to pause it he's it because he tells her it's like when bees attack or something which or deadliest bee attacks which at, back at that point fox Sometimes after the X Files or before the X Files would air stuff like when animals attack, right? You oh, remember yeah. that's always on yeah. Fox. Yeah. And so when he goes to pause it, there literally are a bunch of bees stinging this guy. So you're like, yep. oh, he's not <laughs> watching or like I just the joke is so weird. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, I did a little bit of research on this episode, and I read, I don't know if this is true, but I read to uh, that uh, David Duchovny and Stephen King were both on Jeopardy in 1995, <laughs> and Duchovny lost a question to King, and they made a connection after the show, and that's what led to the 
green light for writing this episode. Cool. cool. Yeah, I heard the same. He told him that he loved the show, and he was like, hey, I'd like to write an episode. So I guess the, the company took that back. <laughs> yeah. He's like, hey, guess what? Stephen King wants to write for us. Um, but uh, yeah, it also really reminded I think it was partially an homage, but it really reminded me of uh, the Taki Tina episode yeah. of The Twilight Zone, which is one of my favorite episodes of that mm-hmm. original series. The Living Doll. Yeah, mm-hmm. Living Doll, yeah. They're- and also a mixture between that and um, It's a Good Life. Yes, yeah. Because oh, yeah, yeah. child was so, I mean, I just, I don't really have a violent bone in my body, but I've never wanted to punch a child so much <laughs> than the Babadook kid. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was poor really. Kid. Yeah, poor. He always gets beat up, right? Um, but he really. My uh, mother choked him out. <laughs> um. It was really a great, it was really an interesting episode. It was a lot of fun and kind of dark. Um, you know, that, that scene where she's smashing herself in the face with the hammer oh, yeah. and seemingly has no bruises whatsoever. But, mm. um, and I, I found, you know, this, I, I, through the, through, it's a theme that police officers or law enforcement officers, local anyway, in the X-Files are portrayed as somewhat dim. Uh, but this one was uh, extraordinary. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was. It was a whole other level of dumb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's kind of it. Um, I also thought that the um, the 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 interactions between uh, Scully and Mulder when he was away and they were just talking on the phone were just adorable. Like they were perfect. Whoever wrote them, they were per- whether they wrote them themselves or added into it, or it was all Chris Carter. They were they were perfect. That's my perfect version of Mullane Scolder. A quick banter back and forth, and light flirting. Well, sp- speaking of their phone conversations, there was I, I had one note I forgot. I really wanted to mention the opening. Was it's after yeah. Uh, no, it is the opening. Scully pulls into a gas station. She's rented a convertible Mustang. Um, her cell phone rings. It's in her suitcase in the trunk. <laughs> yeah, right. <Ooh. laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this so episode would make a great, if you watch this with that war of the... Yes, the coprophages. <gasps> Thank you. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like they're the opposite, where he's calling her all the time. I love that episode too. These, it's um like a bookend episode of each other. Yeah. You can just see he misses her. Yeah. Oh yeah. Did you see yeah. the book? Um, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say the same thing. The book that's on her end table, the affirmation for women who. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, what is that? Anna Carla, which isn't a book. No, it's it's a fake made up book. Made what was up. the title? Affirmation. Uh, for, yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. The affirmation for women who do too much. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and it's on her bedside table. And it's just, um, you, you could just, I mean, the, the um, you could just imagine the props conversation with the <laughs> right. props department. Like, why are we doing this? <laughs> it's just because Chris wants it done. That's why. Yeah. Well, and they put a witch in the forest beneath the, like a moon or something. It's like on the cover. It's like, they kind of like witch. So the, we already got the potential witchcraft thing going on. So it's like, a you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's like, what? Well, it's a lot of effort. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of effort. Why are we doing this? <laughs> Chris wants. Chris it. wants it. Yeah. Hey, Chris wants it because this of the things Chris wants. This is probably the least egregious. But uh, right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, any other uh, any other comments on uh, 
Chinga, which was uh, because of that title, I think, being uh, a, like, uh, you know, slang. yes, slang. Uh, it, when it was released, uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the, for uh, Spanish speakers, it was retitled as Bung Honey. <laughs> I don't know. What that? Don't. I couldn't find an explanation uh, for for why that was. But creepiest. Why did they even name it Chinga? Like, was that a Stephen King mandate? <laughs> it prob- probably, yeah, because Stephen King wants it. <laughs> Stephen <laughs> wants it. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, but uh, not really. But when it was released outside of America, it was released as Bung Honey, which doesn't sound great either. <laughs> uh, creepiest use of the hokey pokey ever, unless I'm missing one. <laughs> but uh, I, I think so for sure. So the another next season with another creepy children's song. That, yeah. Yes, it, for sure. So the next episode, it's interesting because now we had Stephen King in that episode and then uh, William Gibson, the sci-fi writer, who's primarily known for cyberpunk fiction, and at the this point in time, if people had seen anything, you know, uh, done, made into a movie that he had done, uh, unfortunately, it was probably Johnny Mnemonic <laughs> with with uh, Keanu yeah. Reeves from a few years earlier, uh, which was, yeah. was Keanu Reeves' first stab at the cyberpunk genre before The Matrix. Uh, and but Gibson wrote it was it was written by William Gibson and Tom Maddox. It was directed by Rob Bowman, who again at this point has done several episodes. Uh, it's the eleventh episode. This one aired on February fifteenth, ninety eight, and uh, the I I think this episode it's very interesting. It's it's definitely a piece of its time, right? Like when you watch it now, but I think it has one of the one of my favorite cold opens where you see. Uh, these drug dealers get this phone call and it's a voice on the other end telling them that one of their rivals, uh, here's the location of them. You see all these different people getting calls. There's deputy marshals that suddenly get an anonymous tip from seemingly the same voice telling them, oh, there's this Colombian uh, drug lord's going to be in this diner. And they all are converging on this same place. And what we see is there's a uh, there's a guy in the, in the corner of the diner there. We later learn his name is Donald Gelman and he's getting, he's He's doing, you know, I love this in, in, in the 90s, right? Someone's typing furiously and just smacking all the keys. And so, you know, they're doing computer stuff. Uh, but he's <laughs> he's in the process of what it seems to, he's about to erase something, erase a, a file or a program. He's doing, again, computer stuff. And in the midst of, of, of completing what he's attempting to do, we see the drug dealers and the marshals and everybody converge on this place at the same time and shoot the entire place up. And we just see gunfire everywhere. I thought that was a really kind of creative opening. It builds a sense of mystery and we don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, as we see Mulder and Scully come to the scene after this has happened, they realize that Gelman's been working on the laptop there and uh of course, who do they go to when they find uh, all of this kind of paraphernalia that, that suggests they, they find a CD? There's a blank CD in the laptop drive. And when they put it into Scully's CD player, it actually plays a song. It plays Twilight Time by the Platters, another song used to kind of creepy effect in this episode. And uh, then when they do that, the, the flashlight beams are kind of flashing the vehicle's lights. They're like flashing in rhythm to the song, which is also weird. So they go to the lone gunman because who else would they go to? And they can't get through the security code, the, the disks like security code, they check uh, Gelman's email and they find that message in there that has a, an ID number for a shipping container. So then they also notice that this message back and forth, that the person who signed this message is somebody named Invisigoth, 
which I thought, you know, at the time, kind of clever. They track that to a shipping yard and they find a container there in the yard. And when they open it up, they're sort of attacked by a, I guess, goth ninja sort of deal who uh, runs off. And when they capture her, she says her name is Esther Nairn. They take her back uh, to the container. And then there's all this kind of crazy, uh, you know, she's got her own uh, equipment set up in there, this whole computer setup where she's clearly doing computer stuff as well. And she's, uh, as they are, looking around Mulder and Scully looking around, she suddenly becomes very dist- uh, distressed by the fact that uh, on one of the monitors that looks like a Department of Defense satellite has locked onto them and is about to uh, destroy the shipping container they're inside of. So you have probably one of the best explosions in the X-Files is when they, they have to hurry and get in the car and drive away from the shipping container. You see it exploding in grand fashion, you know. Computers really go up, you know. <laughs> um, uh, like, they, like they were filled with firecrackers or something. But then... Uh, when Mulder's like, okay, we need to get out of here and they leave. And when they go back and they, they meet up with the, I think some of my favorite scenes, when they meet up with the lone gunman and Esther Nairn, who was working with, with Donald Gelman. Uh, and she's talking about how he, you know, well, the problem is he realized this, uh, this, this, uh, this drive that they all had was to create a artificial intelligence and that he had managed to do it. And, you know, in classic 1990s fashion, they have to explain to everybody what artificial intelligence is. Well, it's a computer, and it thinks that it's a learning computer, right? And so Esther, uh, everything she's saying sort of matches up Mulder's like, oh, of course it's an AI that wants to uh, gain, has gained sentience, and now it, what it was trying to do is protect itself when it stopped Gilman from uh, putting this CD in, which they deem is the kill switch it will actually go through and destroy this system they're calling it like the rogue system but what it wants to do is get out and get kind of loose on the internet right kind of a ghost in the shell sort of scenario uh but the reason that they say that it killed uh, gelman in the way it did is because in a kind of frankenstein sort of way it was playing with him it wanted to show him that it was it could have just blown him up with a laser or or any number of things but in its sort of twisted sense of humor this is what it did as the episode goes on they they end up sort of trying to track it down and find out where it's operating from and they end up in this sort of trailer that's out in the middle of of nowhere and uh, she, the, the other person that was working with them, I think, uh, David, David Markham, who uh, it's kind of implied that she, he and Invisigoth were, uh, were a couple. They, uh, when they find him, he's he's dead inside of this, uh, inside of this trailer, and there's signs that the the AI is, uh, it has kind of gotten beyond them. But when they get in, it's, things start to get very strange because we start to molder finds himself at one point in a hospital bed and uh, Scully is talking to him and saying, Hey, you know, uh, or no, Scully's not there. I'm sorry. Uh, there's a nurse who's talking to him and saying, well, you know, you have to tell me what's going on. And because if not, we're going to, I think they take his legs first and they take his arms and they, at one point they pull a sheet back and he has no arms at all. Uh, we do have Scully, Scully break in and kick them with like, you know, martial arts uh, ninja skills. And then uh, she starts asking for the information. And so you have this, what's reality, what's not reality, the kind of stuff that you would see a year or two later in movies like The Matrix and Existence and, you know, uh, these various different films that came out. The 13th Floor was also one. So they're playing a lot with that kind of stuff. It's done on an X-Files budget, so it does. some of it looks a little bit hokey. But uh, where the story goes, we have Invisigoth 
uh, Esther Nairn kind of honing in on, okay, the only way to destroy it, we're going to use the kill switch. She's seemingly killed, but there's also an idea that she's going to sort of rejoin David potentially out, I guess, on the web somewhere or where <laughs> somewhere uh, where their, their electronic impulses will live on potentially. Now, what ex- exactly happens to the AI? Not entirely sure either. It's implied that it sort of survives. I think the best stuff is where there's the varying levels of virtual reality and we're watching Mulder and Scully kind of play in those arenas. That stuff is fun. It's a little silly. You don't really think he got his arms amputated. Uh, I do like the scene when they take her in and meet the lone gunman and they're all in awe of her and she's, (laughs) you know, slightly repulsed by them. Uh, I think the best (laughs) exchange of dialogue is as she says, uh, she's got the handcuffs on. She goes, you take these handcuffs on or I'm going to have to do this with my tongue. And then <laughs> Scully looks at her, or not Scully, Mulder looks at her and says, you don't want to put that to a vote <laughs> with the three gunmen <laughs> standing behind her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, it's interesting. There, there was a, a TV series that was greenlit recently called next. That's pretty much the premise for that series is pretty much the exact same premise of this episode, just without the FBI agents. Oh no, actually there are FBI agents in next. So yeah, clearly. And yeah, I think, it's in, it's it's insinuated that Invisigoth uh, uh, joins the singularity with the yeah, AI. Yeah. Like, um, and if anybody's really intrigued by that um, concept of the singularity and digitizing humans, there's a documentary uh, called Transcendent Man um, that is basically a biopic of a guy named Ray Kurzweil, a brilliant inventor. Um, you know, synthesizers, optical scanners. He, he invented all kinds of stuff. And um, he has gone all in on this uh, singularity idea. Uh, and it's a really cool documentary to watch. So, yeah, I recommend it. Yeah, any other thoughts on this episode? Um, I would just echo the same. This was, this was really fun. It's also got uh, kind of a sweet and nostalgic to see what, computers were back then and what we thought they could do um i kind of a flippant comment uh, if you live in a shipping container why do you need so much eye makeup (laughs) that was a good one yeah Yeah. no i I like this one a lot that that, and uh i don't have much more to add it was it was uh it's fun yeah i agree i mean for me it it took a lot of it it felt like it was grabbing a lot from different films I'd seen that that uh, were just prior to it, like Tron 1982 mm-hmm. and Terminator, which is 1984, you know, Skynet going sentient, and then um, Hackers, which is 1995. That's where they got their outfits from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Skynet, The Whopper, <laughs> <laughs> Tron. It was definitely cool. I liked it. I liked it a lot. And I like that it lived on. I kind of like those things, you know, that it lived on when those kids were playing ball and it it had fenced itself into a new RV. It was That's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And I think that this episode, in a lot of ways, it does 
reference some of the things that you mentioned, uh, Shannon, and because it's William Gibson who had been writing in, in with the cyberpunk for a bit before this, you know, some of his stuff is also what has inspired some of the, I think particularly things like hackers and stuff are probably taking a page from William Gibson. I think they all, in fact, he probably inspired everything that came out in the summer of 1995, right? That's when Johnny Mnemonic based off of one of his stories, uh, you had virtuosity, you had hackers and the net all in the same summer to tell you how scary the internet mm-hmm. was, right? And uh, yeah. mm-hmm. and for my money, honestly, this episode of the X Files is better than all four, four of those movies. Although I do have a soft spot yeah. for Hackers. <laughs> hackers is a so bad it's good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. The yeah. Net. I I have a vague memory of that. That's a Sandra Bullock movie. Yeah, that's a so Matt it's Matt the, movie. The yeah. Net, yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. That, that explains my memory of it. That one probably holds up the least because it's so based in just like. It is just a kind of conspiracy theory movie with the internet. So, it, like, everything now is horribly outdated, and there's no science fiction to help it out. <laughs> mm. But I really like this. I like the Esther Naren character a lot. I do, like you said, I like that the, the singularity element, uh, Victor, is what I liked the best about it. But it's, it's just it's, – it's a intelligent story, I think, and the way they present the AI is very interesting. Again – like even by pointing out that there's a new kind of show out there that's covering the same stuff, like, uh, and that's how many years ago, and and our concept of computers and computer technology have advanced quite a bit. It's cool that the the basis is still there; that it's got a kind of very solid structure. So, and to me, of the two between this and the Stephen King one, bringing in uh, William Gibson, I feel like his ideas are translated uh, more true to you know. What he gave us in this felt satisfying. Like, oh yeah, here you go. Uh, like, I, I like King's episode now, but it felt like you know, that's if Stephen King, and this is what you gave us. I feel like William Gibson brought his A game, so to speak. Yeah, Stephen King episode was more of the same for Stephen. Yeah, King. for Stephen King. In fact, the things that make it good are, are you know, not all of them are the Stephen or the Stephen King stuff. But it's pro- probably good that Carter helped write it. Uh, yeah, and, which we uh, don't always say, whereas, right? Whereas this one, like, <laughs> the, the, it's almost like William Gibson's sensibilities fit the X Files more. I think, yeah, particularly, yes, particularly this the sci fi side of it, like that, and, and be and for a season, you're right, Dave, because for a season, it is trying its hardest not to rely on the aliens. That might be why it's so good, right? That so far up to this point, we haven't touched the aliens. It gets to lean in on this, which is a whole other element of conspiracy, and they've done it here and again but they haven't tapped into that computer uh, when they've done it it's been kind of hokey and this doesn't feel very hokey uh not to me so who's got the next episode bad blood i do oh very cool ah. uh bad blood good episode um yeah so the cold the, the cold open is in cheney texas uh and um Mulder is in pursuit of a boy and uh, there's a fight, and Mulder lifts up a stake and plunges it into the boy's chest. <laughs> and um, Scully comes running up, and Mulder's like, "Look!" And he and they they zoom in on the kid's mouth, and you see that he has fangs. But then <laughs> Scully. Um, Paying, paying no heed to what's surely evidence, just reaches in and <laughs> pulls out a, pig, a pair of fake plastic teeth, and they cut away just before Mulder says, "Oh shit!" <laughs> he gets halfway so through. That, 
Yeah, that's the that's the premise of this episode, and um, it proceeds to be a Rashomon style narrative um, of hilarious proportions. With um, you know, for, uh, it starts out with Mulder just like kind of freaking out because they're about to give their debrief to Skinner. Uh, and, um, he's like, well, what are you going to say? And she's like, well, what are you going to say? And, and, um, and, uh, and, uh, he, and then it starts out with, um, with, uh, Scully's version of, uh, of things, you know, he, she, she's telling Mulder what she's going to say in the report and in her version, um, which by far I preferred, <laughs> um, they go to this <laughs> small town and they meet a sheriff who is charismatic and handsome. I think it's it's Luke Wilson, right? It yeah. is Luke Wilson. Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And um, and he he sort of very much agrees with everything. He's like, yeah, that sounds about right. That's a really good comment, Agent Scully. You know, <laughs> it's a good Luke Wilson and, there. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and she's she's fine, and she, the way she glows when he compliments her is so great. Like uh, Jillian is, is really really great in this episode. And uh, anyway, um, then we get to uh, Mulder's version, which is uh, kind of he's putting the town down and the the uh, the, the teeth. The yeah the um, <laughs> the sheriff has bad teeth and. <laughs> They're all a bunch of hicks, and uh, basically the truth lies somewhere in between there. Um, but then the third act of the story, where they go back to the town because more corpses have have shown up. That was that's the uh, I, what I neglected to say was that's the <laughs> the reason they get involved is, there, is there's cattle that are mentioned prominently and a tourist from New Jersey, um, just kind of thrown in at the end there. Uh, that have been insanguinated, exsanguinated. And um, of course, Mulder immediately goes vampires and uh, gives the whole history of vampires worldwide. And um, in the final act, they go back to the town because somebody else has been killed and uncover a larger... So so this is a typical noir storyline trope, which is, you know, a, a, a crime that uncovers a larger conspiracy. And that's exactly what, what Sculler, uh, Scully and Mulder um, uncover to, to, uh, to, their, to their chagrin. Um, and uh, yeah, it's great. One of my favorite episodes of the entire series, I would say. Um, great, slow, kind of comedic music from Mark Snow in this, I noticed watching it the second or third time. <laughs> and their comedy is on point, as usual. Um, yeah. Also, there's a callback to uh, Mulder eating sunflower seeds as a, <laughs> as a habit. It, they they harp on this one vampiric limitation where, like, if you throw something on the ground, they're so obsessive that the vampire has to stop and count everything, uh, which apparently turns out to be true. Um, and <laughs> Mulder scatters the sunflower seeds on the ground, and the vampire is like, "Oh, why'd you have to do that?" And uh, starts to count them, giving them enough time to to strike back. But anyway, uh, that's the gist of it. Uh, definitely track this episode down and uh, and and check it out. What'd you guys think? It's hilarious. <laughs> I loved it. Like, there's not much more to add. It is just oh. funny and like an onion layers and peel. I love how you referred to Rashomon. This is, is. a well put together and executed episode. It's one of the 
highlights of this season. And uh, again, you guys don't probably watch a lot of Canadian television, but there's a guest star with a coroner near the end of this episode is an actor who's incredibly famous up here, Brent Butt. But this is before he got really famous and had his teeth fixed. I It was so hilarious to see him. And like, he is not an actor. He is like a Seinfeld, like Seinfeld up here. He has a, a show where he plays himself. And I, I just couldn't believe I saw him in this episode. It was kind of a tiny little thing, but it just blew my mind. Yeah, as I love so many of the episodes of the season. This might honestly be my favorite. And I remember the first time seeing it. And there's just so many ridiculous things. I love, too, that the... Um, the Ronnie Strickland is played by the the little boy from the Sandlot. I just wanted to hear him scream, "You're killing me, Smalls!" when he was when, when Boulder was stabbing him with the stake. The yes, but the, uh, the most un- unlikely suspect for a vampire in looks, but he does drive a red pacer. I noticed he that. does. He does indeed. A pacer is also a warning <laughs> sign, right? But um, yeah. I yeah, there's a, and I love to like you talk about that Rashomon element. I love some of the weird little details that they keep changing. So, of course, there's like this buck teeth. But I think my favorite ones is when Scully is telling it. And she says, oh, I checked into the Davy Crockett Motor Court. And you'd hear Mulder say, oh, that was the Sam Houston Motor Lodge. And then that, <laughs> that great, like, X-Files, like the type that comes across and tells you where it is, it untypes itself and <laughs> types back the Sam Houston Motor Lodge. <laughs> right. Even, even uh, Luke Wilson's hat size changes yeah. in their perception oh, yeah. to make him look a little stupider or cooler you know yeah <laughs> yeah i love uh, yeah, i love that he sings shaft by the way <laughs> because i oh, yeah, did shaft. not <laughs> <laughs> but oh, uh, so great yeah the, the the banter like the way they see each other in their stories is really yeah. the gem at the heart of this it's just yeah. incredible yeah. I love how Mulder sees himself. He's just this even keeled, even paced, <laughs> logical human being. Yeah. Right. Everything <laughs> says makes sense. Yes. Yeah. I like too when she's yeah. she's putting all the intestines and everything up. Like it's the most comical of all of her like uh, <laughs> autopsies, and it just comes f- slopping over the side. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if the Canadian uh, crew knew that this was their last season, but man, the effects work this year is really good yeah yes high yes. production value I, yeah. you also have to love that when ronnie strickland gets back off of the slab and he's like the vampire and he's like he goes to bite him and he's like licking around and he doesn't have his teeth in so he just this is he no pun intended but does he suck so bad as a vampire that he has to have <laughs> fake teeth to puncture someone's neck is that the gist yeah, of- <laughs> i guess so yeah <laughs> so, so, that's pretty funny in and of itself yeah. yeah, couldn't figure that out. Like, are they vampires? They yeah. they are, yeah. I guess. But it's just that he, Ronnie and he. I don't know if they make a mention of him being a late bloomer or something, but they say something. Oh, right, yeah. I, I, like he's just not like us. Um, and and also the the one liner at the end where, you know, they're like, well, "Where did everybody go?" And Mulder's like, "Looks like they picked up stakes." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Mulder though yeah. making another prison rape joke. This prison Scully, your cellmate's name, nickname is going to be Large Marge. She's going to read a lot of Gertrude Stein. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, come yeah. on, Mulder. Yeah. Well, so if I feel like this and postmodern were just like the peak of silliness. 
Yeah, yeah, they were. So I think that Chris Carter has to, or rather, like the writers are like, "Look, we need a break. We need to just, we need to stretch our legs and 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 walk out of the reality of these legacy episodes every now and then and yeah. do something funny." And, and this was a Cliff. I mean, Cliff. Sorry, this was a Vince Gilligan written episode and it was directed by mm-hmm. Cliff uh, Bowl. So the interesting thing, though, is like the the people again Darren Morgan known for this sort of thing he's not even involved but you still the spirit is here if you saw, if I saw this episode I would say yeah and and didn't know who wrote it that would be my guess but I think it has again to do with the fact that they had to plan this out very specifically it's probably a lot of you know and so they got to really focus in I think this season has the best like uh, one offs you know monster of the week or whatever you want to call them like. Those episodes separated from the mythology are, in my mind, like top notch. Most of them, you know, there's one or two, like we mentioned, this misogyny, not great, but for the most part, they're pretty, uh, and they're they're so varied. But you're right, like these these are doing the funniest X Files episodes. I think this one in the postmodern Prometheus, and it has too what you mentioned earlier, uh, Shannon. This one also has a sense where it's again the I think in the, that one it was a comic book. Here it's the Rashomon style thing where they get to divorce it from reality. Like, so even though the ending is what Mulder and Scully both see the, the vampire bit, even that part still feels a little, little fantastically goofy, even for the X-Files, right? Like that doesn't quite feel like it takes place in exactly the same world as say kill switch or Chinga, but you know, it's that tone that they've got you going with it. So then you're, you know, you're like, okay, I I can buy this. Uh, Yeah. It doesn't have to live in the reality. It just, uh, it can break its own rules. Yeah. Okay, so next episode, uh, episode 13, Patient X. Uh, this is another one that I have. And <clears throat> now we're back to the uh, the alien conspiracy big time. Uh, so uh, let's see here. Victims of, an alien, victims of alien abductions are being killed, which confounds those responsible for the alien conspiracy. They also have a problem on their hands when Alex Krychek returns to the U.S. from Russia. Maria Kovar, 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 I, I can never pronounce her last name. Kovarius, Kovarubius tells them. Um, oh, uh, Kovarubius. Oh, Kovarubius. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, tells them he has a boy with him that may be particularly problematic. Scully and Mulder, meanwhile, are at odds. Mulder no longer believes in the alien conspiracy theory, convinced that it was all a hoax to hide government experiments. And Scully believes the alien conspiracy to be true and meets and visits Cassandra Spender, who, like herself, was abducted and has an implant in her neck. She is also the mother of an FBI agent, Jeffrey Spender, who asks the agents to leave his mother alone. Uh, yeah, that's it's a that's a very basic uh, outline of what's going on here. I I. This is a this is a really good one. Uh, Veronica Cartwright as the main guest star, and she's excellent in everything. Uh, most people probably recognize her from Alien, but she's in um, so much genre uh, stuff. And she's really good in this. She plays the the mother of Jeffrey Spender, who so he's the. Uh, let me just look up the actor's name again. What was it? Is Chris Owens, who we've talked about a few times this this episode. He was the young cigarette smoking man, the great Mutado, and now he's going to be Jeffrey Spender for the next couple seasons, right? He's he's in a few more episodes. Yeah. Um. So as the uh, yeah the outline was was starting to say, this it starts to confuse a lot of the 
conspiracy because no one seems to know what's going on. Uh, the, the, in the, in the cold open, a couple of young boys come across, uh, uh, like a huge fire bombing. There's, there's people being burned and melted. Um, and, and what, what, what turns out to be going on? Uh, well, you don't actually, you don't actually find out in this episode. This is another two parter. Uh, but, but everybody seems confused. The, the, uh, the heads of the conspiracy, what we've been, you know, what we've called the Illuminati sometimes, they seem to be surprised by what's going on and uh, a little afraid that uh, the aliens might have been leading, leading, uh, leading them uh, along and, and lying to them as well. And also Mulder is in the, in, in the, in the mode where he, he believes there's a conspiracy, but it's again, not the alien conspiracy that he thought it was. And, uh, like he thinks he, he thinks he's being, he thinks he's a pawn, which he is, but he's not the pawn that he thought he was. Uh, Krychek is still awful in this man. He, he catches one of the, the young boys, one of the witnesses to the, to the initial, uh, massacre and, Man, what he puts this kid through is just horrible. Really, really awful. Um, also, Agent Spender, he seems like a really arrogant jerk. Like he he just won't listen. He 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 jumps on uh I think it's Scully that he confronts first. He does not want Mulder encouraging his mom. He doesn't believe in any of these alien conspiracies, and his mom believes that she's an alien abductee. Uh she she kind of um, first noticed Mulder during the Dwayne Barry incident, and she's wanted to meet him for a long time. Anyways, Agent Spender doesn't want Mulder to encourage this behavior, but if he just took the time at this point in Mulder's life, like if he, if they talked, they would probably be on the same side because Mulder doesn't actually believe anymore in the alien part of the alien conspiracy. He only believes the government is behind it. So I don't know, that's a little frustrating there, but but it, it all works really well. Um, and then, then there's a, a great cliffhanger in this episode on, on a bridge. Um, you're kind of hoping that, well, you really don't know what's going to happen. So I guess that's why it's such a great cliffhanger. But um, I'm starting to get the second episode uh, confused with some, uh, some, of the, some of this part. So, yeah, I guess that's all I got in my notes here, guys. Yeah, it's a good good episode. I liked it. I I really liked seeing Veronica Cartwright. She was really good, and I believe she won an Emmy for this, or was at least nominated for an Emmy for this. Oh, what she did as Cassandra Spender, and uh, she and she does show up, you know, again. But I I thought her performance was really was really good. Um, I, I'll be honest, guys. Like, uh, I think Nicholas Lay's great. His cry check, of course. You know, we know that he keeps coming back, and I enjoyed him initially. But I'm kind of just done with him. Even by this point, when he came back, I'm like, oh. Crychecks back, and now his name is also starring in the credits. Perfect, great, you know, because like you said, Dave, like what he keeps kind of go back playing the 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 angle of oh, am I on your side? I'm not on your side. But what he does here, particularly to Dimitri, is pretty much unwarranted, right? Like, yeah, I don't it's understand. Just, it's just villainous, kind of almost for its own. Like, there's no redemption already, for that. Yes, no, he he already knows what the oil does. Yes, like they yeah. seem to, he seems to be, you know, he was involved from the very beginning with the Illuminati, so. He has yeah. information. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. His I don't know. His character is that. very weirdly contri- contrived at this point, in my opinion. He's the he's the weak link for me in this episode, and honestly, kind of the weak link going forward. There's nothing he really does from this point on 
that is very compelling to me. But that's that's just me. I, I think he's in there. He's a character that probably, quite frankly, never should have come back. But I think he's back because they're still sort of obf- obfuscating the fact, at least in this part, that uh, we have not heard hide nor hair of the cigarette smoking man. We've continued to be led to believe that he is dead. Right. 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 Actually, I had forgotten that. Until. Until. Stay tuned next time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Oh, hey, there's that one scene. Is that panel discussion that um, that Mulder's on where somebody references that uh, there are sites around the world that aliens call lighthouses? Yeah. Which were. Hello, Victor. Lighthouses. Mm. Um, (laughs) I thought that was interesting. I like that. But it's also, uh, I like how it goes from Hmm. he's a huge skeptic, Mulder, in this one. And then, I mean, not to skip episodes or jump ahead or anything, but then we get to just the next episode and does he he does an about face. Oh, yeah, he gets his faith back. That's right. In this conspiracy. I believe people are screwing me over again. Yeah. Yeah. Good episode. Yeah. Does anyone actually have this episode, the next one? I think so. Red and Black, that's me. Okay. Yep. Are you? Oh, we are recording. Sorry. Never mind. Yeah, oh, we're recording it, so whenever you want, Shannon. Oh, okay. So, yep. uh, okay, so this episode, Red and Black. Um, let's see. Uh, the opening credit, the line I read is resist or serve. Mm. Is that the first time that we see this? Yes. No. Yep. Oh, it's the <laughs> oh, first time we see those words, but yes. that's not the first time they changed the words. Oh, yeah. really? Well, it's the first time this little brain caught that. So I thought that was so cool. I was like, did I just see that? <laughs> like if I was watching this on television with my buddies you back in the, you know, in the 90s, I'm sure I would have been like, what was that? <laughs> you know? That was a big thing because if you felt like that was the call, like you didn't know what the movie was going to be. The resistance server was like, oh, this is, you know, things are heating up. And right. this was probably around the time they were airing the trailer, I imagine, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I, I immediately was like, Oh my gosh, I remember this. I remember where I was when I saw this. <laughs> um, okay. So we open up on dun, 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 a little boy running up to a cabin in the woods. <laughs> um, and the, somebody's writing a letter and it ends up being the cigarette smoking man who's alive and well smoking cigarettes in the woods. Um, and then we cut to the aftermath on the bridge at Skyline Mountain, which was the end of Patient X. Um, and Scully is in the hospital again. <laughs> um, cry, and, and as Dave said, Crycheck has this young man on a boat that he's brutalizing. And it's, it's very upsetting. You know, it's really upsetting. Yeah. It, it, it really bothered me. Um, a couple of like, had to kind of look away a little bit. Um, then there's a big blast at, I'm going to say this wrong, Why Why Kemp Air Force Base, uh, which is apparently someplace in Europe. And we see these two humanoid men who are dragging one another from the crash. 
I don't know what the name of the actor is that plays one of these um, um, faceless men, but he's he's pretty scary. He has that Terminator quality too. Is, is it Brian Thompson? Yeah, Brian Thompson. Mm, yeah, probably. Yeah, he just has that like relentless walk towards you. <laughs> I have a fear of people who walk towards me fast. <laughs> he scared the bejesus out of me. Yeah. Um, so Scully's back in the hospital again, and they're having these um, sort of these um, moments of flip-flopping point of view where Scully is now believing that this is the alien abduction and she's seen it on the bridge and Mulder is still skeptical saying that this never happened and this is all a conspiracy from the government. Um, and I thought that was super interesting. I like it when they flip-flop point of views um, and... Uh, then we um, uh, enter um, one of the alien guys from the resistance. They have sealed mouths and eyes, I guess, to to guard them from this black oil. We see Krychek's girlfriend on the operating table in hopes that an antidote. Um, the tribal elders are looking down at them with bated breath, hoping she recuperates from um with this antidote and um and then we scully's out of the hospital and she's now at Mulder's old hypnotherapist <laughs> um puts scully in a scandalizing trance um where she is recounting the bridge scene with the alien spaceship that took cassandra away who happens to be um I forget that guy's name. Um, Spender. Spender's mother, right? Um, then we end up in Skinner's office where Mulder has a new stance on the government and it's no longer an alien conspiracy, but a government conspiracy. And Skinner's like, I believe in the aliens before I believe in the government conspiracy. There's a weird but small scuffle with Mulder and Krychek in Mulder's office in Mulder's home and I could be I could have been like hallucinating this but I think Krychek kissed Mulder on the mouth and I didn't know if that was like a Godfather reference or something hmm. that's where Mulder says his infamous masturbation joke and um Krychek then gives him all of his confirms his suspicions that this is indeed a, a government conspiracy I thought that this episode was incredibly informative, but it was a lot thrown at you. Um, at the end, it's uh, we're back at the Air Force base and shapeshifters seem to be rescuing one of their pals. Um, and then there's an alien abduction of the aliens. <laughs> uh, and Mulder believes again. It, he has the longest, like, no <laughs> in history. And um, we end right where we started, back in the cabin with the cigarette smoking man, you know, getting a return to sender letter from his son. Yeah. Um, I, what can I say? This, thank God this was you know, a, a two-parter because uh, Patient X left me wanting. But I thought it for me, it just felt like I was lambasted with all of this information. It was a lot to take in. I saw this episode almost two and a half times before I could get it all in. It was just a lot happening. I felt like there could have been 
this could have been two episodes. There was so much happening. Um, but yeah, I want to know what you guys think. Um, I think at the end of this episode, we then go back to, to Mulder renewing his faith in um, his original uh, ideas about this being alien life form on planet Earth, as opposed to just being a uh, government conspiracy. Um, but again, this flip-flopping, it's a slight, slightly schizophrenic, this episode, but um, I enjoyed it. It was very informative. Yeah. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Shannon said it all, but um, yeah, I, I think that um, the the Krychek kiss could be a Russian cultural yeah. thing. Um, maybe it's just the Russian guys I know, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's weird guys, for you know? <laughs> two Russian guys to kiss. Yeah, um, but um, but yeah, I, I, and also during the hypnosis session. Jillian um, just going, I don't think this is working. And then she goes, oh, my God, is so <laughs> intense. Like, it's yes. an incredible scene. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I, Chan, I think you're right. There is a lot going on here. And it is changing gears, like, so quickly from this is an alien conspiracy to now it's an alien civil war, right? And. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and then some of the stuff is never explained. So we but we are getting ties tying things in with the alien bounty hunters. I thought it's kind of weird that you, it's like okay they're aliens. So but then do they assume, assume these hum, human forms? And then they have to take these human forms and then seal up the mouths and the eyes. Like was there a better way to do this? Like I just, you know it seems kind of weird. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Now this again this episode airs what was it like a march of uh, 98 or something like that and of course there's no real comparison here i mean meaning that there's i don't think there's any actual like uh inspiration that did this but i noticed that uh when you, when you see the syndicate when you see the cabal and they're around that table that's like illuminated from the bottom i had just seen the movie dark city which is about you know i don't want to get into too many spoilers with it but they're they're they feature these shadowy figures that sort of control everything and they're around this sort of giant clock and they, there's something about the way they have this syndicate arranged there that reminded me of Dark City, where you know they're they're pulling the strings and they're around this illuminated table. It's a very like it is a metropolis style sort of image, or you know they all look a little bit the same. I thought that uh, production design was pretty cool. I love the fire bombing on the bridge is is very neat. Um, but there is just a lot of it, and honestly, I would have probably jettisoned the cry check stuff because again, you finally have the explanation. Oh, he, he exposes Dimitri so that like anyone who wants to know what he potentially knew is going to get infected by the oil too. But if Crychek's, you know, we are always questioning: is he fighting the alien menace? Then why would he want to spread the black oil? You know, it's just like it's all. It is. I mean, let's face it: it's not just confusing and contrived; it's convoluted. <laughs> Some of it is. It doesn't make it not fun. It's just, I think this is the point. I think Tommy had said one of the previous episodes that around this time is when the there's a certain feeling of uh, the episodes being a little bit muddled when it gets to the mythology. And I think it's because they keep changing so much. And here they're trying to kind of have enough red herrings that they're marching you through and getting you to the movie without you knowing what the movie's going to be about. I think that was probably part of the end game was well, we want to get them there, and we're going to keep changing what it looks like. The movie's really about the government. No, just kidding. It's about the alien civil war, but we're not done yet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like that um, season, you know, Lost, where they were like, we don't know how to end this. We're not yeah. sure we really want to. And so we're going to keep going. 
and we keep throwing in things we have no intention of answering. Now, I don't think X-Files is as bad as Lost yet at this point at season five, but it gets there. Is this the episode where the, the cigarette smoking man comes back? At the very end, I think. Well, though it's clear he's kind of that's who's in the cabin, I think, is kind of obvious from the beginning. But I don't think they show him till the end. Is that right, Shannon? Oh, I, darling, I don't remember. No, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's, I'm pretty sure that's yeah. right. I thought it was supposed like, to be the reveal, but I haven't. it's been a bit since I've seen it, so I couldn't remember. I, at the beginning of Patient X, you just see him hand a, a letter out, and I think at the end yeah. of this one... You see his. You actually see his face. I think. Yeah, I think it's the beginning of this episode. You see him with the letter, and then it's oh, the end right? of this. Yeah. So thank you. Also, that. that that part at the beginning of Patient X, where he hands a, an envelope and a Canadian five dollar bill to have a letter sent to the states. That's the most unbelievable part. Five bucks. <laughs> no way. <laughs> <laughs> funny. Um, yeah. Any yeah. other thoughts on this one? No, it's just a lot. It, it was a lot. lot. It yeah. was a, a lot. big meal. When I think that's at limitation production value, though, I will tell you that you know, I mean, lots of explosions, lots of cast, um, good, you know, good set designs. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, the, the firework in this episode. Who had like the the product, like whoever the, the production team that worked on the the fire parts. Man, that's that's always dangerous. That's impressive stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, between this and Kill Switch, they got some serious pyrotechnics going yeah. on mm-hmm. in uh, this season of the X Files. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the next episode is Travelers. Uh, who had that episode? I, I've got that one. Okay, very cool. Um, <clears throat> let me read that IMDb description again. I think that's working for me. So, Travelers actually. Oh, yeah. No, this is the right one. Sorry. <laughs> in uh, in 1990, a man dies, and the last word he utters is Mulder. Uh, Mulder, thinking that this has something to do with his father, investigates and learns that the man supposedly died in 1952. He then goes to speak to Arthur Dales, a retired FBI agent who was supposedly investigating the man back then. Initially, he doesn't want to talk to Mulder, but he eventually changes his mind and proceeds to tell him, the story about the man whom he arrested and who later died while in custody and then later saw alive again. He would uh, also tell him that he was contacted by a man named Bill Mulder, who told him of a huge government conspiracy. Um, Yeah, that's, that's the basic story, but this is another really good one. I picked uh, a couple of really good ones. Um, Essentially, if you want to break this one down, this is, uh, the Mulder meets meets Kolchak episode. Yeah, <laughs> but that's that's simplifying it. Um, before I start again, this this is another one with some great special effects, and and the guest star this week is Darren McGavin, who uh, it, it's it's got like you know six degrees of Kevin Bacon here because so uh, Darren McGavin, who played Kolchak, was kind of the inspiration inspiration for Fox Mulder and they, you know, there's a, these are both investigators of the paranormal. So it's kind of neat that they, they put these two guys together. And, and I, I had read that uh, Chris Carter wanted Darren McGavin to actually play Mulder's dad, but he, it just didn't work out that way. So anyways, he finally got him involved in the show. It's interesting. Cause he couldn't get him to play Mulder's dad, but he did get him to play Lance Henriksen's dad on millennium. Oh. Earlier this same, so the ninety seven ninety eight season, 
in Millennium, he plays uh, Frank Black's father on Millennium. So that's how he got into. And then uh, Carter brings him in as Arthur Dales here in this episode. So it's actually second time he's worked with. Uh, oh, cool. Chris Carter. Well, th- this one has another creepy and uh, 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 kind of mysterious cold open. Um, this, the, uh, the story starts, I, be- I believe the whole episode takes place in the past, but the recent past and the far past, like the, I think the episode opens. Yeah. Well, it says it does say that in the nineties, sorry. Um, but the bulk of the episode takes place in the, in the early fifties because it's a, it's a big communist scare. And actually that's the, this episode, it doesn't probably not for everybody, but it gets points for me because I'm a big mark for the forties and fifties. I love that time period and the fashion and all that. So it's kind of cool. Um, when when uh, when the episode opens, though, Mulder hasn't been involved in the X Files yet, so he doesn't really know what they are. He uh, he's he's. I think this is maybe his first investigation into an X File. Anyways, what he what he does is he 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 finds the agent Arthur Dale's name in a in a highly redacted file, so he goes to to meet him. And that's kind of how they, they uh, start the episode. Mulder is at Darren McGavin's door and he's, he's really bothering him. Um, and actually I, I don't know Darren McGavin from uh, like a lot of his work. I have only, I remember seeing Kolchak when I was a kid, but he is really good. Um, like there's, there's a couple, two scenes where uh, he's not in this episode a lot, but there's a couple scenes at, at his door and he's kind of, uh, impatient with Mulder, but his facial expressions and reactions, they're really good. He's a really good actor. Um, and it's too bad. He's not in, in, uh, more of this episode. He kind of gives him the, the definition of the X files, what, what the X files are. Uh, so I guess more of that prequel stuff that we were talking about earlier in the season and Mulder actually smokes in this episode. He kind of actually looks like the smoking, the cigarette smoking man. Cause he's always playing with his hair. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's other, there's actually, this is, uh, it's, it's like, uh, there must have been a huge, real, like a real, real scare in the, in the, in the States about the communist threat in the 50s. Cause there's also, I, I noticed there was another show called I Was a Communist for the FBI from the 50s. So you guys, really had a fear of them. It was really bad here. I wasn't alive, but it was me really either. bad. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, me neither. But it was, yeah, the blacklist. It's, if, yeah. if you ever watched the movie Trumbo, it's, uh, that's what it's about. Wow. Well, yeah. so, so one of the, the higher ups in the FBI, a guy with real power and, uh, and, and authority, it, it's, uh, I, they just call him Mr. Cohen, but I assume he's up higher in the FBI. He's, he's, uh, this real threatening character, very, very pompous and self-righteous. He basically intimidates uh, young Arthur Dales into lying. Um, they, sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting ahead of myself here. They, they go to arrest at the beginning of this episode. They arrest Edward Skur, and while in jail, uh, he apparently kills himself, and uh, Arthur 
is a little feels a little guilty about it. So he goes to try to apologize to Skurg's wife. And while he's there, he sees Skurg come back to the house. That's how all this gets started. Um, he, he wants to investigate and tell the truth. And people keep pushing him to, uh, to lie about it or redact his story or say that he didn't see what he thought he saw. And he's threatened uh, almost with being accused of being a communist by his superiors if he doesn't change his story. And he spends the rest of the episode trying to figure out what's going on. And it's a bit of a monster of the week. It's a bit of the alien conspiracy uh, because what he what he what he ends up finding out uh, once he's tipped off by oh yeah there's you get you get to meet uh, Mulder's dad uh, young Bill Mulder he's played by someone who on IMDb he's listed as uh, D- D- Dean Aylesworth but I swear to God it's it's Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day <laughs> he looks so much like him I'll, I'll I'll send a picture to you guys if you don't believe me right. anyways he um. He also gives him some, he, he, he tips uh, Dale's off that there's more of a conspiracy going on, but he's also, I think he's using Dale's. They're, they're all trying to set him up to, to kind of hang himself so that he basically disappears. Uh, but he ends up capturing, at the end of the episode, he ends, he ends up capturing Skur, who is a victim and a monster of the week. He, he has this, like, um, this this thing inside him that needs to eat and suck, basically suck dry uh, uh, other humans to survive. And it, actually, what it reminded me of, I don't know if you guys have ever seen, have you ever seen The Hidden? Yeah. It's, uh, the, the alien, yeah, yes, a lot like that, much. although I, I don't think it actually fully comes out of Skurg in this, movie, in this uh, episode. Right. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, so basically, by the end of the episode, what you've got is uh, the, 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 the start of the X-Files and possibly the beginnings of the alien conspiracy. But at, at this point in the past, it was different. They were uh, surgically altering humans with, uh, I wrote down the, the exact term that they use here. They, they make illusions that, that uh, some of the Nazi scientists that the Americans brought back after the second world war were using xenotransplantation on Americans to uh, experiment with the, with the, with the alien DNA. And that's how, how, how Skurg becomes the monster of the week. He needs to keep eating people. And it basically all ends up coming, uh, coming full circle back in 1990 where he's finally killed um, accidentally and that's that's how Mulder got involved in this case, uh, because the last words out of Skur's mouth were Mulder, and he basically um, tracked just with with uh, the the name Skur and Dales and Mulder was able to uh, find older Arthur Dales and piece all this together. Yeah, I feel like I I feel like I lost the thread of that episode there, but it is a really yeah. excellent episode with great guest stars and special effects. Yeah, it's really cool. And uh, yeah, I think there's sort of a comic nod to the series where they're discovering the early X-Files 
uh, were filed under X simply because there wasn't enough space in the physical file filing cabinet for the letter U. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. Why would you file them under unsolved? I love yeah. that. And uh, I think that the Zeno, I don't know if they cover this in the episode, but I think the Zeno transplantation was a reference to uh, the U.S. government um, importing Nazis under Operation Paperclip after yeah, World War II. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's like real Zeno transplantation. <laughs> which they which they actually incorporated into the previous one of the previous seasons, if you remember. They actually yeah. had, they had yeah. an episode called Paperclip, yeah. That's right. Um, and, and so they kind of take that to, I really like this episode a lot, and I love, love, the casting, not just McGavin. I love McGavin. Of course, I think Dave, in addition to uh, uh, Night, uh, Night Stalker, in fact, probably a lot of people probably grew up seeing him before the Night Stalker on, uh, not that it was before the Night Stalker, but kids in the 80s probably knew him first from A Christmas Story. So uh, he plays oh, the father. Shit, it's the dad yeah. yeah, the dad, right? Not a thing. <laughs> oh, my God. Facial I, expressions and everything. I what? totally forgot about that. <laughs> so I've seen that. It's funny because it, the episode he did for Millennium where he played Frank Black's dad, uh, it's a Christmas episode and he plays his dad like in the 50s, but it's a much more somber kind of depressing episode. So you don't, you don't get him touching leg lamps or anything. But oh. uh, the other casting that I think is kind of fun here is um, I think it's Frederick Lane who plays – uh, Dale's as a young man, and he probably hadn't seen him in a lot of. So he he ends up later. He's a, he's on Lost for a little bit in the very beginning, and he's uh, he's on Supernatural. I think it's he's the the green eyed or the yellow eyed demon or whatever in, in Supernatural. Oh, is he? Yeah, but what he would have just been in because this is ninety eight, right? So this is March of ninety eight. The summer in before nineteen ninety seven, he's the border agent that gets the aliens sprayed all over him at the beginning of men in black when he's screaming and the blue creature is chasing him. And I think, uh, Oh uh, yeah. And, and, and they neuralize him and he's just got guts and stuff hanging off the top of his hat, like blue translucent guts. And like, <laughs> nope, it was, it was just a, a gas pocket or whatever. <laughs> uh, so I think it's kind of funny that, you know, you, you, you saw him there as the, you know, he's kind of the, uh, completely clueless guy. And then they neuralize him and it's like, Oh, well now he's a men in black essentially, you know, <laughs> almost, uh, here, Garrett Dillahunt is really good here. He's played yes. square, and I, I, he, I, he's a, I think, an underrated uh, kind of character actor. And he's, I think, he does a really nice job here. Often, I you either see him playing the scumbag or he's like uh, comedic, and I like that here. He's more of a tragic sort of character. He looks like a baby too. He must he have been so young when this was done. Yeah, yes. yeah. Now, I like that they brought back the actor David Fredericks, who played J. Edgar Hoover in Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man, and he's back here again as Hoover. But you were talking about that, uh, Dave. You were like, "Oh, was the communist thing a big thing here in the states?" Well, that that when when uh, Hoover's going off on that like all that like paranoia stuff that he's talking to Arthur Dales, you know, he's talking about the communist menace and everything. Everything he says there was essentially taken verbatim from things that, that Joseph McCarthy, who was the senator that was pers- trying to blacklist everybody, who was trying to ferret out the Red Menace, those are almost verbatim things he actually said okay. like in front of Congress, more or less. Yeah, yeah. you're a communist if I say yeah. you're a communist. Yep, yep, exactly. That's, that's like that's that that power and ability to do that back then, like it's just so scary. That, that like sure. uh, just with just my word, and you're gone. You're 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 in, you're jailed. You're no one will ever care about you again. That's insane. I, I'd love to, to talk about that, but I think it would take up too much of this uh, one episode 
of this <laughs> reviewing this entire series. So yeah, <laughs> and you and you would immediately disappear, and we would never hear from you again. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Even I mean, now. <laughs> yeah, I think um, just to summarize, it's it's um, it was basically the 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 second Red Menace was uh, was just in the U.S. was was just a perfect storm of post-war sort of. I don't know arrogance or uh, or something combined with uh, the actual threat of a growing USSR at the time. Yeah, and uh, yeah, a lot of innocent people got burnt. And we should never forget the details of that. Oh yeah, and also I just wanted to mention for any completists out there that um, the Night Stalker started out as two movies of the week for TV. Yep. Um, it was the Night Stalker, which is a vampire hunt in las vegas and then there's the night strangler um which i think came the year after the year after that Mm -hmm. which is um sort of a a jekyll and hyde story set in seattle so and then the 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 kolchak series came after that but those are the the first episodes of kolchak and they're pretty good they're both yeah they're both really good um kino lorber put them both out in some really beautiful transfers so they're both worth uh picking up nice um yeah, Night Night Strangler has a lot of it's really cool because they get into like the underground under Seattle and stuff. That stuff is oh, yeah, really neat. Exactly. I've seen yeah. it. Is is that series also an inspiration for the? Um, oh shoot, it just slipped my mind. We mentioned it earlier. Uh, oh, the Dresden Files. I'm I'm sure to some extent, yeah I'm sure to some extent like any kind of series of a of, of because the thing with the Dresden Files it definitely has that uh, that hard boiled detective sort of thing and while while Kolchak the kind of the, the gist of Kolchak is he's kind of more like a uh, uh, like a smart aleck reporter and not quite the 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 hardened private eye you might want on the case the right. style of his show and the style of particularly those two films that victor mentioned is very much in the like uh kind of seedy noir detective kind of feeling so yeah I, i'd imagine that that kolchek and the night stalker have inspired a great many things yeah <laughs> but uh yeah so let's move on to the next episode and we're we're humming right along now this is episode uh, 16 and this is mind's eye and i think is this uh, your episode victor yes okay um yeah mind's eye so yeah the cold open is in wilmington delaware and um it's uh, an interesting story idea that i i don't think translates super well to television but probably would have made a really great short story uh because um there's to summarize like there's there's a suspect in a murder case uh and the suspect is a woman that's been blind since birth um so uh, this was apparently inspired by a really great movie from the 60s with audrey hepburn called wait until dark um where she is a victimized blind woman that has to learn all about her surroundings while she's being stalked by this professional hitman or criminal um but uh She's, you know, Hepburn is very likable in that movie. And um, so the writers of this episode of The X-Files thought, hey, it'd be really cool to have a story like that, but we'll make the the woman really unlikable. Um, so they got Lily Taylor to play her, which is a really weird combination because she's very charismatic. She is very likable. Her performance is very likable, but I can see that they were going for 
her like ruffling everybody's feathers and she is kind of insulting a little bit, but I don't know if it quite worked the way they thought it would. Um, but uh, Taylor's great. I'm a huge admirer of her work uh, and she's spot on in this episode. Uh, and um, yeah, it turns out that they tackle the concept of remote viewing, which I looked up and I can't tell the difference between this and clairvoyance, um, except that clairvoyance sometimes see the future. Um, but it's it's basically a type of clairvoyance, as far as I can tell, where a person sees through the eyes of someone else. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening here. So uh, Lily Taylor's character, Marty, is um, seeing through the eyes of this killer that has basically haunted her her entire life. And that's why she is at the scene of the crime at the beginning. And she knows so much about murders that haven't been committed yet, but then are. Um, and... Mulder is basically because she's so abrasive to every, everybody. Mulder's the only one who checks his ego and thinks that she's trying to cover up some other thing, uh, which she is, uh, and uh, tries to go to bat for her and prove that she's innocent, even though she doesn't seem to care whether she's convicted or not. Um, and that's the, yeah, that's the premise of the show. And there's another reference to the ice capades. <laughs> this episode. I don't remember exactly how they mention it, but it's something like, well, you know, you, you were, you were in prison, but at least you weren't at the ice capades or something like that. But, um, I don't know. I've never seen the ice capades, so I can't vouch for that. But, uh, uh, anyway, I thought it was a really good episode and, um, and very different, um, there's not too much for Scully to do in it. That's my one criticism. Yeah. But uh, other than that, pretty cool. And uh, really glad they did it. Yeah, it was written by Tim Minear. What did you guys think? I loved the chemistry with uh, Mulder and Marty. And I think maybe that's why Scully didn't have so much to do. <laughs> because there was so much going on with those two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and funny, Lily Taylor was actually, it says that she was a drama school, uh, she went to drama school with Jillian Anderson. So they oh, wow. went together. And I, you know, it's an interesting thing you point out that, Victor, about how, you know, they've kind of got this unlikable character and then they hired Lily Taylor, who I'm a huge Lily Taylor fan. I, you know, probably around this time in 98, probably had a bit of a crush on her. And she goes on, I think she does the Haunting remake, which was not great, except for her. You know, she was very good in it. But she does have a likable presence. However, she in 96, she was in I Shot Andy War. Hall, so maybe the people who cast her for this saw that movie and thought, "Hey, you know, she can kind of be the rough around the edges character." Um, yeah, and she's and she's also a little bit before this in uh, a black the and vampire, white vampire uh, movie called The Addiction. Yeah, The Addiction. That's what I could. I was trying to remember the the name of it. Yeah, with Christopher Walken, right? The um, yep. is that Abel Ferrara? I think. That, that yep. Does it? yep. That's a good. That's a really good movie. Uh, what's that one called i don't think i've ever seen yeah. that when i see her i think of um say anything <laughs> yeah. oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Say anything yeah that's more the likable uh yeah she was doing some some kind of gritty sort of indie movies around the, in the in the later 90s there and she did i shot andy warhol and uh the addiction and i think they're both worth seeing the addiction a little bit more maybe and it is a vampire movie and it's cool it's a pretty cool vampire movie art artsy but uh cool 
I th- you know, the other thing about the remote viewing, I think you're right, Victor, is like, so I think the difference, and this comes from listening years and years of Art Bell, you know, the coast to coast where he would get into all the nuances. <laughs> and I don't think Art Bell understood it either. But I do remember a really creepy exchange where Art Bell had a guy on there who said he could, he had learned to remote view, which in my mind is, it means, uh, no pun intended in my mind, but yeah, it means that you can uh, see you can, it's, it's more instead of time where, you know, clairvoyance is I see into the future uh, that that remote viewing is I am seeing maybe in distances and places I can't travel to. I can sit here and yet I can kind of project my mind, uh, you know, to Seattle and check in on on, you know, uh, Victor or I could check in on whoever, you know, I, I can do all that from right like here. 11 from Stranger Things. Yeah, that's more like to mind is like remote viewing. I think here the writers get their like wires crossed and they're like, okay, combine it. Cause I do remember there was a guy on art bell and he was telling art bell. He was like, and I drew, I was, I could, I projected myself into your house and I was sitting up in the corner watching you uh, do the podcast. And he's like, and then I was driving out somewhere and I thought, Hey, I bet I can find my way to art's house just by using what I know from. And he's talking about how he drove and he's like basically outside of art bell's house and art bell's freaking out. He's like, oh, yeah. I gotta, I gotta get off a phone call right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I love um, the dogs out. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So, but yeah, I think here they're not quite certain what remote viewing is either. So, <laughs> uh, apparently, the government did a study on it um, in something called the Stargate Project, which was declassified in the 1990s. I don't know anything more than that about it, but if you're real, really into this, that's where <laughs> the in- info is. <laughs> <laughs> I liked this episode, I think, only because I liked Lily Taylor so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought if, you know, what you said, Victor, about the inspiration being Wait Until Dark, which is one of my favorite plays to watch. Mm-hmm. If you've never seen it on a stage play, it is so great. Um, but I thought if that was their inspiration, they really missed an opportunity to create the villain. Because uh, uh, Harry wrote, I think, is the name of the um, at, played by Alan Arkin. Yeah, um, yeah. What a creepoid. Yes. And just there was a missed opportunity there because I had no idea who this villain was. I I didn't connect with any of the people that he was killing and I actually didn't even care anymore. Yeah, he's not he's not particularly scary or anything, although he does some scary things. But um, but yeah, (laughs) Alan Arkin in in, um, Wait Until Dark is (laughs) memorable. (laughs) super memorable but anyway i mean maybe that maybe it was supposed to be more focused on her but for sure i think if they i think if if they hear i yeah that's that's all i have to say about that maybe if they had gone for a, a villain in that mold everyone would just be comparing him to alan arkin and coming up short so maybe they're like well we'll skip that i agree i think it's lily taylor all the way who and she got an emmy nomination for this uh oh, really? for an outstanding guest actress um in a drama series yep Oh, that's now, great! Uh, in in the continuing uh, adventures of uh, David to come, the ad libbing that bit where he says, "Even if even if the gloves don't or do fit, you can still acquit," was <laughs> was indeed improv. Surprise, surprise! But. Yes. Mm-hmm. I just have one more thing about that one. It's funny that you mentioned. Uh, you said something about it would have been a, a, a better. Um, I, I, did you say movie or or, or short story? Short but story. short story, because yeah. because the twist is really good. Um, and in prose, 
you could write a blind character really well um, because there, you, there's no visuals. So yeah. it's oh, yeah. describing what she experiences anyway. That's true. That's true. Well, it's similar to what the one of the one of the the last note I wrote. I, I thought uh, it, it was good, but it would have been um, even better. I said it would have made a great X Files movie if they made more movies because they could have made this a lot more intense and uh, you know horrifying. Yeah, you know what? It almost it's almost as if it would have been really good for an X Files movie where they didn't want to deal with aliens and they want to keep it somewhat grounded in the real world. Mm-hmm. But no. The, the movie version they did was <laughs> took an idea like this and ruined it. But anyway, that's for a different day. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. Uh, the, uh, so the next episode we have is the uh, is, is called All Souls, and who has All Souls? Oh shit! Yeah, that's me again. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All Souls. Uh, a girl dies a mysterious death. Mulder and Scully discover more girls' lives are at stake. And it turns out there is a divine battle of good versus evil um, happening. And uh, the the girls are being targeted. Now, there's a lot of episodes. There are even past X-Files episodes, which which are sort of wars between heaven and hell. And they're waged on Earth. And Mulder and Scully just kind of witness what's going on and maybe interfere a little bit. Um, but it's, you know, just sort of because uh, Scully has faith. Um, these episodes are very intense to her. Um, and uh, I just just want to say a couple of really cool things about it. Um, one is it really reminded me of this uh, short-lived series um, called G versus E, or Good versus Evil. I remember that. Which is all about that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of post-Tarantino, um, but it's a divine war, but it's fought with agents on Earth. And uh, it there are some really inspired episodes of that, that I absolutely love. Um, but, um, one of the things that's really cool, uh, about this episode is, uh, spoiler alert. Um, it turns out that it's God that's killing the kids. Um, and that really blew me away. I was like, wow, they really went there. They did that. (laughs) Um, so I got to admire that. Um, that's a big topic because I'm sure it sort of alienates their faithful viewers a bit. Um, but it's done in a very tasteful way, and uh, I thought it was a, a good episode. It, it engaged me, and um, yeah, pretty cool. So, yeah, what do you guys think? I like this episode, and it it does feel like it springs from it does. You know, a lot of it feels like it would belong on Millennium. It is definitely reminiscent of the episode that uh, Michael Berryman was in of the X Files a few yeah. seasons earlier than this. But you're right, Victor. A lot of ways it goes way, it goes much further into a uh, casting casting some uh, interesting ideas about uh, scriptural concepts that, that that wouldn't jive in a Sunday school class, right? You know, uh, there are references. We've seen the concept of the Nephilim, which is the the children of of, of angels and, and human women. Like we, we've seen that referenced all over the place. And in fact, most of the times it's referenced that they are uh, like almost like superhuman or, or, or uh, monsters of some kind. Sometimes I, I, when they did the, the Noah film that Aronofsky did a few years back, they had the Nephilim look like the rock biter from the never ending story, but here <laughs> they are children. And I think uh, it's definitely kind of weird and kind of off the wall at points, but you're right. It's like, so God sends an angel to go, you know, basically, uh, 
take their souls so the devil can't get them, right? That kind of yeah. idea, which is, you know, which is cool. And, you know, it's it works in the sense of the story. But when you start to think about its implications and its implications for for uh, the faithful, it's uh, that's pretty intense, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah, know if you guys have seen a horror movie of some years back called End of the Line. That uh, was yeah. um, I, I just give you the basic premise because it's very much like uh, one of these movies, not unlike something like uh, the, the Sadness or, or one of these movies where everyone just kind of goes crazy all at once. But instead of going crazy, essentially, the, you got these char- main characters are on a subway train and they're uh, on their way home from work or something, and they, there's uh, several of them, and suddenly. Uh, it's like everybody starts getting alerts on their phones, certain people in this in this uh, on the subway and they get up and they pull knives uh, out of their, you know, whatever they happen to be uh, wearing. And uh, I think some of them maybe end up donning robes or something and they all start singing hymns and they just start stabbing and killing people. And uh, the implication is that 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 a large group of of really, I guess, Christians, faith, the, these faithful Christians that are part of a maybe subset cult have this belief that the end of the world is coming, the demons are on the way, and they need to take as many souls out as they can. So wow. there are a few left wow. to be gathered up. Hmm. And I won't tell you any more about the movie, but it's basically the survivors on the subway versus this cult of people that are stalking them down. Um, and that's, you, you get a little bit of that here, but it's very weird, I think, that you have Scully uh who's constantly confronting both her faith and her skepticism in these supernatural events. And this is a pretty wild out there supernatural event that she seems to come down on the side of, yep, that's what's happening. Yep. And yet I think it's interesting because it does give a catharsis for wrapping up the Emily storyline, which I thought was kind of neat. Yeah. She has a few scenes where she's certainly, she's just tripping seeing Emily on that slab. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to rewatch this one. I definitely remember the the way this starts, but I do not remember God taking any part of this episode. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that's that's sort of the twist. Um, but yeah, it, it is. It, there are creepy elements uh, to it with the the kids that are being targeted, uh, like they have too many fingers or something like that. Yeah. And oh, that's right. Six, yeah. is it six fingers they all have. Yeah, the way um, they the way they die. And their eyes yes. are getting burned out, right? Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah, reminded um, me of the uh, the prophecy with uh, Christopher Walken. Yeah, only <laughs> been a year yes. or two before this. It, just it very much did. It really did remind mm-hmm. me of that. And I was thinking to myself that this episode, I want to see a series about this episode. Maybe there already are a series about it or something. Well, but... Millennium gets pretty close. Yeah, if oh, you haven't seen that, you, you I think you'd enjoy that one. That that blends like. More much darker serial killer material with end of the world eschatology and Christian, uh, like uh, the like everything involving demons and angels and uh, and the kind of a war between heaven and hell, like what Victor was talking about. Yeah, yeah it was. It was the, yeah, it was the, the late '90s. Was I remember pretty pretty <laughs> thick time for apocalypse, like mm-hmm. biblical apocalypse movies. Even Schwarzenegger fought the devil. Yes, that's right. <laughs> One year, we were all worried about the Y two K coming to get us. That's that's yeah. exactly what it was. That is bang mm-hmm. on what it was. Didn't the Mayan calendar stop at some point, and we were all going to die? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. So, almost twelve. Twenty twelve. <laughs> the only thing that nobody called was uh, COVID. That almost went. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. All right.
right. Anything else on this episode? I do. I do really like it. I think it is a little bit. It goes further than I can remember uh, into the kind of uh, blending the Christian like stuff with almost like mythology. You know, it was something that's a little more mythological. It's not strictly the Bible. You know. Yeah. And I do like the ones where Scully is the believer. Yeah. Yeah. And we also, in uh, season five, got both actresses from Ginger Snaps now. We asked. Oh, cool. Yeah, we did. Yep. That's that's a good. And who also, you know, uh, she also shows up on uh, Supernatural. <laughs> yeah, I think both of them. Every, can, every Canadian does eventually. I, yeah, I was going to say, every single person on this show has ended up on. They basically filmed in the same woods and highways. So, yeah. <laughs> right. They just go from one set over to the next. Okay, come on over here. Um, yeah, so how about the next episode, the Pine Bluff variant? Kayuger! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have, that, I have that one, um, oh. and it is written by uh, John Chabon, and the title is based on Pine Bluff, Arkansas, which was the location of a U.S biological warfare compound during the cold war. Um, and I think in this episode, we see Mulder and Scully definitely in more traditional FBI roles. Um, that sort of foreshadows what we're going to see in the beginning of the movie too. Um, and the episode opens on what is an undercover operation in a park in Washington, DC, um, Skinner and Scully are in a surveillance van and Mulder's jogging through the park. They're watching this militia group leader played by Daniel Von Bergen, who everyone I'm sure instantly recognizes as George Costanza's boss Kruger <laughs> from Seinfeld. He's in one of their best episodes, the Festivus episode. Um <laughs> But um, in this one, Mulder's basically going undercover with this militia group who's gotten hold of a biological weapon. There's two leaders within this group kind of vying for power. Um, and we get to see the effects of this weapon, which is my favorite part of the episode. First, kind of a little bit in the opening scene at the park where it's appearing to kind of eat away at this man's face. And then later on a much bigger scale, when it's released at a movie theater, killing like 14 people, it's really bloody. We don't get to see a lot of it, but inside the movie theater, like they're basically the bodies are skeletons with like a little bit of flesh and blood left on them. Um, there is a scene where, Scully arrives at this movie theater that I found strange, even though they said it's safe and everything. We are talking about a biological weapon of some kind, yet she picks up a movie ticket off the floor next to one of these bodies with no gloves on. Oh, man. <laughs> like this is Scully. She loves to slap on the latex. There's no way she would have picked up that, that thing without a glove on. Exactly. Um <laughs> But uh, the two group leaders um, kind of accuse each other of betraying the group and Mulder gets caught up in that. And when this episode ends, um, the government has cleaned up all traces of this toxin and one of these group leaders ends up infected. And the last scene is like his car slowly veering off the road. Um I read online that this episode was really well received when it aired. I think people 
the way they thought about the government is they thought that something like this really was going to happen someday. Um, for me, honestly, I wanted more backstory on this toxin. Like I wanted to see it where it got created at this probably secret um, U.S. biowarfare lab. How did it get out of the lab? I would have liked it if it went like a little more horror and a little less domestic terrorism, but it is the X-Files. Um, and that's just me based on what I read online. I am definitely in the minority. Like it seems like everybody else really loved this episode and I liked it, um, but that's just what I would rather have seen. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. The, the undercover aspects of this um, kind of reminded me of this really cool 80s cop show called Wise Guy. Ken Wall. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Like every season he gets the confidence of some criminal group and then exposes them and he works for the FBI. It's a, it's a good one. He got tortured a lot too, if I recall. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And I like here that they get in the next episode, which I think is one I would talk about, like Mulder still has his fingers taped together. Oh yeah. For one of the nice little touch. Um, Yeah. Well, and then you hear too, Mulder calls the one guy the gimp. He's like, oh, this is like like a Pulp Fiction (laughs) reference. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's the I I like the episode, but it's another one where I think I like it because of the casting. I like Dano Van Bargen is very like uh, he's good here, and yeah, he's memorable, obviously as uh, as uh, uh, George Costanza's boss. But I think I also think of him from uh, a movie that I think slightly underrated, which is Clyde Barker's uh, Lord of Illusions, where he's oh, like, very good. the evil I like. God, uh, he was in that. Oh. He's in the beginning, and he's telling all his followers, and he's throwing that ball of fire back and forth in his hands, and he's like. And God said to me, "That's yeah, a pretty, uh, pretty creepy guy." Sadly, he has a pretty sad uh, oh. story. Like I, reading about his life, you can kind of um, check that out. I'll put some links in show notes. But yeah, he, he the last few years of his life were not really uh, pleasant mm-hmm. ones. But a good actor, and he he also had a, a, a reoccurring role of Malcolm in the Middle, where he played, I think, the head of the military school that one of the kids went to, and he was yeah, the oldest he, brother. Yeah, yeah, he had a he had a pension. He could play a, a, a straightforward villain, and he could play like, a, kind of a, a you know gruff guy with a humorous spin. So he's he, the villain in Oh Brother Where Art Thou, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. The law is a human convention. Yeah, yeah. You only saw that. Yeah, he was the devil essentially. He had the right. the black glasses. You always see the fire reflected in them. Yeah. But uh, I think I think he does. He goes a long way to glossing over some of the stuff that doesn't quite make sense. Like, like when even some of the crime scenes, they don't ask questions like when they're in the movie theater, like why is the projectionist dead? <laughs> and uh, they make a point that this is really painful and horrible, but everybody's just still like chilling in their theater seats. <laughs> unless, unless Scully rearranged them while she's picking up the ticket. You know what? Those are here. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. Right. It's like an advanced case, like a rapid hyper advanced case of Ebola. But mm. then they said, no, no, it's streptococcus. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. what? They were jumping all over the place. Yeah. So I think I think you can't think too much on this one. It was one of the weak. It was still good, I think, in the season, but it felt weaker compared to how well plotted some of these other episodes were. It also felt like it would have been a real FBI case instead yes. of just an There's nothing so, nothing crazy in it. Well, I mean, it's crazy, but there's not really. We were nothing at that point science fiction where you know, but the, but 
the like domestic terrorist angle thing. This is not how long is this after like the Oklahoma bombing and things like that, which the specter of that shows up in the X-Files movie towards the yeah. beginning, right? So you, I feel like this move, this episode is playing a lot off of that kind of thing. Hmm. Maybe it's made in the same place as the unusual suspects gas was made. <laughs> right. <laughs> All on that factory. This is the factory of heinous crap. There's that <laughs> one, that two. Yes, just that one. It's all, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anything else on the Pine Bluff variant? Not me. I don't think so. This was, for some reason, I kept getting this episode mixed up with an episode from the reboot like oh, yeah, the episode about that. forehead sweat i don't know why it has nothing to do with it but in my head that's what i was gonna watch so you had sent that message to me karen and i was thinking you know every time i saw the pine bluff variant i was always thinking it was like a monster of the week and like the pine bluff variant sounds like it could easily be the title of detour right like yes it or could. something like that and i was getting it and i was like and I, honestly the episode i'm about to talk about i thought maybe this was the pine bluff variant but <laughs> i could really remember until we started watching the episodes but so fola edu is the 19th episode of the x-files and it was like may 10th so it's right before the last episode and again they do you know we've had a relatively um constrained amount of references to the mythology you know we've had lots of uh monsters of the week that don't have a lot of connection although they as we pointed out like you see skinner i mean not skinner but you see Mulder with his hand bandaged up in this episode there's still a great deal of continuity but there's just uh, they. I think they do a nice job of making these contained stories. Um, this is, you know, we were talking about kind of like Pine Bluff variant having elements of, you know, the anxieties of the time uh, with with the sort of domestic terrorism and then saying, oh well, the government could do this to us if it wanted to. And then we have a different kind of uh, anxieties of the time that come out in this episode, uh, which, you know, the cold open deals with a with a guy who. Uh, is a telemarketer and he's in this office and he's in the middle of his kind of telemarketing uh, spiel on vinyl siding. I think <laughs> he's trying to like make a case for <laughs> selling vinyl siding and uh, he's just chilling out there. And then uh, he starts murmuring that, Oh, you know, it what was it. It's here. It's here. Or it's And he, he sees, he senses and sees something that, that we aren't quite sure of at first that appears for all the world like a monster and it's it's in his office and he can't see it outright but he it, it's it's definitely at the edge of his periphery and uh gary is this guy he's gary lambert he's pretty certain though that it's his boss that's this horrible evil thing that is actually uh taking his co-workers and i guess you know uh a job like a telemarketing, I guess, metaphorically eats your soul, but it seems <laughs> that his boss is legitimately turning his coworkers into zombies who come back and say, oh, he just wanted to talk. But in Gary's eyes, he sees them drained of their essence. They look like Ramiro zombies to him. But uh, from we see our perspective, they look like people. And uh, Gary's boss is definitely a schmuck, but we're not certain that he's a monster at this point, right? Um, and this guy is Greg Pincus. He's like, when, so Mulder, it, I think the scene is interesting when Mulder and Scully get called into this by uh, Skinner, who who sends them to investigate this case. And it goes back to what you're saying, Victor, is like Mulder becomes instantly indignant. 
You know, he's yeah. instantly, what did I do to piss him off? Well, look, look at your behavior. Watch the last four seasons, <laughs> last five seasons, Mulder, and you'll know why he's pissed off. But, you know, uh, he, he goes off. He's like, oh, you know, what does he say? Uh, Monster Boy will take care of this or something like that. And he just leaves and tells Scully, don't waste your time. I'll go take care of this. Uh, which, again, another episode where we have Scully and Mulder sort of separated. But I think it really works here because of kind of what happens. So he gets there. And he hears this term that uh, uh, when he's he, when he has that taped message, and he hears Gary saying something about hiding in the light, and he calls Scully up on the phone. And again, we have those back and forth telephone conversations where he's telling her, "Go look up hiding in the light." And of course, Scully's looking at all these <laughs> files. Like, go oh, just scour the back catalog. And she's like. Okay, that's what I got. And so imagine her job. She's back here going through all of these files. Seemingly, you know, it doesn't look like there's a database she can easily click through. You know, she's going through all these files to find references to hiding in the light. And that's all he gives her to go on. And uh, uh, Gary's getting more and more uh, troubled because uh, when when his one of his cubicle mates, uh, Nancy, gets called into the office, that's when he notices, hey, she looks like a zombie. It's getting more intense and he is doesn't really know where else to to turn he's getting so uh, sure that this is a monster that has to be stopped and there's this this message that's played over the the uh, is it over the is it a, is it a tv station or something how is it? i can't remember exactly but the the message about that it's out there and it has to be that it's a threat like that taped message does it go out across the television i'm trying to remember how it goes out uh, no, I guess it was an audio over the over the air, over the radio. But uh, th- I thought that element of the story was interesting. And of course, when Gary can't get any kind of satisfaction over uh, anyone believing him that this monster is out there, he ends up coming into the office and taking a hostages with a with an AK forty seven. And Mulder ends up in the you know is one of the hostages. And this is around the same time that Scully finally does find. Uh, a reference in the previous X-File to a, a case where a deacon said hiding in the light. And guess what he did? He thought one of the people in his church was a monster. He came in and he shot up the church and shot many of the of the uh, the people in the church too. So we've got this hostage situation. Scully flies out there and joins up with the FBI and the SWAT team that are already outside the building. And we see Gary, he's, he's in there and he's got his... Uh, the people he's taken hostage, and many of them his co-workers, including his boss, they have him at, like this barricade. And, of course, Mulder's trying to get involved there. Uh, Scully is calling up and trying to get the, the SWAT team to you know, just give them what they want so we so Mulder doesn't uh, – you know, Mulder's in there, and he's in trouble. Well, at one point, Gary opens up Mulder's jacket, and that's when he sees his gun. So he grabs it, and he hits Mulder, knocks him on the ground. And then one of the hostages gets up and, ch- and runs at Gary – uh, and then he turns around and he shoots him. So he shoots him dead. So now Gary's actually killed somebody. He wants to speak to the FBI agent. And then that they, they kind of fool Gary into thinking that uh, he's being broadcast out through the city. And they're, they're, you know, that's what he wants is this moment to tell everyone about the monster. And he's telling them all to look at his boss and look at Greg and look at it. And what's interesting is this is the moment when Mulder looks over his shoulder. 
he sees the creature. He sees this full blown thing that looks like it crawled out of the, the Outer Limits episode or something, right? Yeah. And uh, which is exactly when I saw. I was like, oh, that's like an Outer Limits monster. A little the Zanti Misfits. The Zanti Misfits. Something like yeah, exactly. Like something of that that nature. I was looking at. It. I love the insectile nature, particularly they reference like a praying mantis. I think er- earlier in the episode. Uh, with the way that he seems to drain them, turn them into zombies, because the guy that Gary shot was one of the the uh, suspected zombies that wasn't a human anymore, but was one of potentially the his boss's henchmen that he's created. So Mulder's now himself questioning everything he's seen because of, of seeing this quote unquote creature, and that's when the uh, Scully mentions, "Oh, it's like full of do you know the madness shared by two that people under." certain circumstances of trauma might have similar uh, delusions about things. And, uh, but Mulder's now kind of thinking, well, maybe he's not so insane. Maybe this, there's something to the idea that Greg Pincus is a monster. And of course, M- Mulder does what he always does when he suspects somebody's uh, uh, a creature. He follows, <laughs> he starts following them and gets in close enough proximity to cause trouble, though he doesn't drive a stake through Pincus's heart or anything. This <laughs> uh, but he goes to, so, but what he knows is Pincus is going to the house of another employee, Gretchen. And when Mulder's outside the house, he goes through the window, guess what? He sees the creature again and is kind of a, attacking Gretchen. That again, very has a 1950s look to it. She screams, Mulder comes in, and now she lodges this complaint with the FBI saying that Mulder is breaking into her home and he's doing all these things. And this is when Mulder's beginning to think, you know what? He's gotten to her as well. And she is now, uh, and, and Mulder instantly, bam, he's in a mental institution. <laughs> I'm pretty sure these aren't the craziest things that Mulder's done, but <laughs> yeah. boom, he's finally in the mental institution. Of course, is the main reason for this is so he can be incapacitated while the creature that is, uh, Pincus shows up to, to get him. And around the same time, Scully is realizing that, Hey, there really is a toxin in the back of this dead hostage's neck. And there's a puncture mark there too. So she goes to the hospital and she's uh, she sees, she has a moment where she sees the nurse looking like one of the zombied uh, individuals that, that have been infected. And she gets to Mulder's room and the creature there is crawling on the ceiling and it's weird herky jerky. Like it's there and it's not almost like a sputtering film frame a little bit. And, uh, I, you know, they have the confrontation of the creature and the creature sort of just, you know, uh, as these monsters often do, they escape so they can come back <laughs> later on, you know, very rare. No, they never have a dead monster body, right? Never. No, it never ends up with a dead creature. And, you know, uh, one of the scenes I always love, I really think this season is great for the wrap up bits where there were, because Skinner doesn't have a lot to do in this season compared to other seasons, I think. But he gets these great little moments where it's just the wrap-up to the case. And again, it's here him and Scully talking, and he's like, well, what do you say happened? And she's like, she can't quite come out and say, yeah, this guy was a giant bug. <laughs> it was turning into a zombie. <laughs> and, and Skinner's almost trying to get her there, like, but but what are you saying? It's like, she comes out and she tells, uh, you know, she's like, oh, the truth, such as it were. <laughs> and, of course, we see that... Uh, the monster is is gone to yet another vinyl right office and is spreading his evil amongst telemarketers. But I really like this one. I think this is a great mm-hmm. monster of the week episode. I thought the monster was great. It was very cool, very creepy, very scary. Probably one of my top uh, ten X Files monsters. You know, uh, it's it's pretty high up there. I think even though uh, the episode may not be quite as good as some of the other monster episodes, I think it's really good. Here's the thing I think about this episode. I don't know what you guys think. This is the one right before the final episode of the season. I guess they wanted to kind of go on a bang and give us something really creepy. But man, 
with something like this out there, and Mulder and Scully kind of both see this thing, I mean, at some point, one of these things end up being a worse threat than the aliens. I mean, this is a guy that can make an yeah. army of zombies. It's right, because he's out there spreading and doing that. How many How many different branches? How, he can't be the only one, right? Right. Well, I got the call centers yeah. still out there. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd be willing to say, you know, they don't just, they tuck this thing away and forget about it. I think if I was Mulder, I'd be taking a break from the alien invasion and go hunting down the telemarketing mm-hmm. giant bug people. Like, it's just, I know, possibly. It's, this is what's. It's insectoid, so it's probably part of a hegemony type society. Exactly. Knowing this is out there. Like it's it's like just a couple episodes ago when they know that there's like seraphim running around burning people up. Like when when is it just like the aliens don't even matter right now? Right. Yeah. I thought the sound for this was even creepier than the way it looked. The yeah. noise that the the creature made it it reminds me. Well, I mean, it came out after, but that movie Absentia. Yes, yeah, oh yeah. Hang it's on, the, it's yes, yes. It definitely reminded me of that. And this episode has one of my favorite lines ever when Mulder tells Scully, you know, she has to believe him because you know she's his one in five billion or whatever it is that he says to her. I love that. Yeah. Me too. An interesting point to Karen, what you said about the sound. So they, mm. one of the facts they were they were kind of throwing out here is that they, when they were had this thing on set, the suit. I was making the joke about it being like outer limits. They said this thing was not scary at all. So when they looked oh, at really? it, they were like, so I think that's why it moves the way it does and the way it sounds like it does. Because they said they had to do some really serious post production work to make sure that this was not a comedy episode because oh of no, look, yeah. look, and you gotta get that because I think the suit. I was gonna say like the suit in and of itself is not creepy, but he's the way that he. Moves moves and the sound design like you said that makes it kind of unsettling yeah you almost can't even see it because yeah. of the way it's moving so fast yeah, and then with that like noise <laughs> yeah yeah man like they did a sh- shutter effect yes of, mm-hmm. and yes. um and the noise sounds like a cicada it yeah it does oh yeah it's like a low like it this thing reminded me of just like a locust so it goes from call center to call center Maybe even like a cicada only comes out every seven years or something to feed. And this scares the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. Like, this scares <laughs> more than aliens, you know? Yeah. I am not a bug person, <laughs> nor am I into bug people. So, <laughs> me either. And I worked in a call center too. So, this was super creepy for me. <laughs> oh, no. Did you have a bug boss? I didn't have a bug boss. Sometimes sure? in a call center, you kind of wish you had a bug boss just so you could get. <laughs> Out of the call center. Because your soul eaten. <laughs> Her soul was eaten, but it was a different reason. Right. That's, That's right. The best <laughs> aspect of this. It's his call center, and his, his, it, it's so bad that his uh, his fellow co-workers don't even know they're zombies. <laughs> like right, they right. Yeah. And they don't know they it. They were they're, zombies before they were eaten. Yeah, I was like, yeah, this, this is... is- this is probably my favorite episode of the season, except for bad blood and detour but um i i just absolutely loved it kind of reminded me of they live a little bit yeah oh yeah almost nobody can see what's going on but you know that once Mulder knows you're you're like oh man this really is happening and only a few people can see it if that you know um so i think it was (laughs) it's, it's pretty intense yeah I think it was Dave who said earlier, like, oh, like regarding one of the episodes, oh, this could have almost been a movie. This this could have been 
an X-Files movie uh, and expanded where they have to fight the bug overlords, right? (laughs) The the ones that are out there clearly still doing horrible things, probably with those alien coprophages, right? Like, you know, they they need to take care of this crap. Uh, But uh, yeah, I loved it. I think it is one of the best uh, of this season and a nice kind of creepy note to end it on before they jump back into the mythology. And um, the other thing that I did want to say, we're talking about the, the, the anxiety thing. I think what was creepy here is he's, you know, you've got this scene where he's taking these people hostage. His brain is snapped, but has it like he's like, he is legit. Like the thing the, like we had a lot of episodes this season where the conspiracy is real. The crazy gunman that takes people hostage isn't wrong. And that happens several times this season. And I think this one more than the others, you know, before it's like the aliens are coming to get us. And here it is really like, you know, if you're not watchful, the government will crush you or these forces, the, the, the establishment will crush you right here, here. He doesn't need to worry about the government because he's got a crappy boss that will eat his soul. (laughs) Right. But it's still the man. It's still the man. It's the man either way. Every episode has that vibe to it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's episode 19, and then we go into episode 20, which I think I also had called The End. And uh, this is, this to me does again what, <laughs> what Shannon, you were talking about earlier, where it just throws a whole bunch of stuff at you all at one time, and they're like, here, digest this. We'll see you in a, we'll see you in about a month when you go to the movie theater. And, um, <laughs> I do like the way this is set up. This synopsis investigating the murder of a chess player, Mulder and Scully meet a boy, maybe the embodiment of everything in the X Files. How convenient. Uh, and I like that opening too, with the, the, the kind of chess and, and kind of uh, callbacks to like uh, Bobby Fischer and things like that. I thought that entire kind of scenario was pretty cool. And then you have this sort of assassination in the middle of the chess match. So all of this, I think, was really interesting. And of course, we have a cigarette smoking man is back, back in the game, back doing his thing. And, uh, and so is Alex Krychek. Hooray. And <laughs> so then you have Skinner uh, kind of calling Mulder and Scully and to tell Mulder about this. And the, the fact that that sniper was someone who used to be part of the national security a- agency and agent spender again, hooray is brought back. <laughs> At this point, I'm running kind of low on fumes for all of these gar- for these guys particularly but uh Mulder does figure out that okay their actual target was 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 gibson the little boy and then then uh i think this is when we bring in diana fowley who is played by mimi rogers who again i think i had a pretty good crush on her about this this point in time she's really good i like her a lot uh she she's uh got some ties to Mulder. there's some some you know now we get another kind of triangle started not that we really needed that but uh, and she's sort of in, in agreement with him that, yeah, you know what? I think you're right. And then, of course, Spender, who's got to be told two or three times to watch the tape a couple times, finally, like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. And then uh, we see Cigarette Smoking Man. He's meeting with the the elders, and they they all sort of come to the conclusion that we have to get rid of this boy. We still don't really know why. They go to visit uh, Gibson. He's inside. A, he's in a hospital. And uh, Mulder kind of says, oh, you know, here's an opportunity for you. To, I'd like to see you go up against this chess computer and uh Mulder's got this idea that you know what maybe he's not really the reason he's doing this is to kind of draw him out and prove that you know I don't think he's a master at chess but rather he's got the ability uh to read people's minds and know what they're going to do next which is why he's so good at the chess game not because he's really 
a, a great player. And so uh, he's clairvoyant. And then Mulder uh, goes to see the um, the assassin, the person who tried to kill him, and is also trying to get, you know, again, draw the government, point out that this is a great conspiracy, and they're all kind of after the boy. And then, uh, of course, at this point, Scully is getting a little moody because guess what? Mulder's got another beautiful woman uh, hanging out with him. And uh, she goes, well, I like the, I really like her scene when she goes to the lone gunman, which I'm trying to think, is this the first time that Scully has gone sort of unsolicited on her own to see to see these three guys it feels like it is but i could be wrong and uh she and she's trying to pull the pull dirt on diana on diana fowley and uh and i you know it goes back and forth at one point she comes in and there they are holding hands and uh you you do see uh i think anderson's pretty good uh her acting in this episode where she is trying to play up this uh a little bit of confusion that she's not entirely even sure of where uh, everything's muddled up together regarding how she feels about Mulder. Uh, now that Diana's sort of in the picture per se, uh, I think that some of it's a little contrived, but I think her acting and her performance is good. Uh, then we get back to Spender interacting with cigarette smoking man. We, and, and Mulder is observing that, okay, you know, it looks like they, they they're in cahoots in some way. And uh, now he says he doesn't know like who he is when he's asking Spender, like demanding to know, you know, what's going on. And then, uh, as it continues, Scully ends up. Excuse me. Scully meets with uh, Skinner and Mulder, and she's showing them that hey, here's the result of what we've learned about Gibson. And uh, there's a part of his brain that they they've dubbed the God Module, uh, or they haven't dubbed, but rather neurophysicists have. And that that this hub is where uh, everything that he's able to do, his clairvoyance and everything else, uh, centers around this part of the brain. It's specifically. Uh, they're concerned that they want to kill that the the cabal want to kill him because of this ability, and they they're thinking that if we could tap into this, I don't know why they think this because look at we just had giant bugs that eat you know turn you into zombies. <laughs> I'm not sure how they think that Gibson's uh, abilities <laughs> as expanded and as amazing as they may be might explain everything in the X Files. That you know that that seemed a little bit like lazy writing to me, but they think that the the assassin will be able to give them all the information they need to bring down the conspiracy, the, the entire cabal that want to and, and to kill Gibson and, by extension, stifle Mulder and Scully from ever learning the truth. And then Skinner saying, hey, the very ex- existence of the X-Files will be put at risk if you want the attorney general to give immunity to this assassin. Like, it, you know, you're going you're gonna to take the whole deck of cards down or the whole, uh, I guess, house of cards down. So Mulder is trying to get information from the shooter. And then he, he says, he tells Mulder, well, Gibson's the missing link. And this is where we get the, the big, the big aha moment is this is proof of uh, man's evolution into ultimately an alien race. He's the connecting piece. And uh, while that's happening, cigarette smoking man is trying to get a hold of Gibson himself. Uh, the assassin gets killed. Big surprise. Who didn't see that coming? Uh, Diana gets shot. And then, uh, cigarette smoking man gets the kid and brings them to uh, Krychek and John Neville back again as a well manicured man. And then uh, we hear Mulder flipping out again at the bureau, <laughs> attacking another. <laughs> I don't know how he still has a job. Everything else is fine. Uh, and he's attacking Spender this time. 
and uh, he wants to know about, you know, he's accusing him that, and, and pointing out that Gibson's gone and the cigarette smoking man had to do something with it. And so did Spender. And everyone's again trying to restrain Mulder. There's no, there's no uh, Skinner to get him in a headlock, but, you know, and then Sculler <laughs> tells him that, uh, you know, they're going to shut down the X-Files and cigarette smoking man oh. gets into, yeah, again. <laughs> it's like again. The, the, the Scully in the hospital. Scully gagged in the trunk of a car, and the X Files <laughs> down are are are, are frequent uh, faithful standbys of the X Files. But cigarette uh, smoking man sneaks in, steals a file on Samantha Mulder. We back to that again. Uh, he and then we have him confront Spender and uh, tells him, you know, in classic Vader style, that he's his father. And uh, at that time, the fire alarm goes off, and uh, he runs off, and you know, the X Files have melted into nothing <laughs> but you know the poster with the ale with the spaceship still on the wall uh those gully uh and Mulder are left in literally the smoldering remnants of the x-files and that's that the end <laughs> yeah <laughs> what man, a great, great. Oh. <laughs> yeah uh man if it would have ended there it would have been the best show on TV of all time. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, they do have many, many great moments after this. Um, but w- one thing I really loved about this episode, the end is that the entire episode is like a chess game with the, uh, the cigarette smoking man being recruited by the syndicate. And, yeah. you know, it's like pieces taking pieces. And, and um, I thought that was kind of cool and uh, yeah, good performances and yeah, really neat. I love how this little boy looked like a mini frohickey. He kind of does. Yeah, yeah. He, or, I totally or like, see that now. yeah, I was, I was, he's, a, he's like a uh, slightly more uh, uh, bald, I guess, uh, the little kid from uh, Jerry Maguire. Like, human head weight was eight pounds. That would have been something at the time. Uh, but uh, here, you know, he can just make your head explode if you wanted to, I guess. Um, I, I, I really. I don't want to, you know, spoil anything, you know, particularly as we go into the, the, the next uh, season and talking about the film. But I really expected him to play a role in the movie. Am I the only one who thought that? Oh, no, I did, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, and I, I get that they filmed it first. And I don't know if he was an afterthought uh, it, you know, or an intended bridge that we're going to bring up later. But I mean, are still a part of me that thinks that had they taken him and welded him into the film and just made the film the end of the show i i think that but this is a pretty good episode i i like i what did you guys think about diana fowley because i think the way she's integrated here is a little irritating to me but i like mimi rogers uh, and her portrayal of her i don't know what you guys thought i like yeah i like the actress and and, and I, I do i don't mind the character being there but it feels a little repetitive. Like, didn't didn't we do this already in season one or two, where he yes. had yeah. a, a previous fling with someone that um, I, I think yeah. it was Amanda Pays. He, oh yeah, yeah. She's another agent, right? Yeah, yeah. But she's from yeah. she's from England or something. Anyways, yeah. it's, yeah. it's, it's it's nitpicky, but um, but I, I assume that uh, the, the character will be in season six because she's not in the movie. Huh? I'm trying. To, I think she. Uh, no. I no. don't. Have, okay. Is this it? Her? I don't remember her being in the. Well, I, I, maybe I just assume that because I saw. I see that Spender gets a couple more episodes. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I, I love don't... that line with 
suspender where Mulder says, you're insulting me. Well, you should be taking notes. <laughs> yeah. That is yeah, a good everybody, one. yeah, try that on your boss and see what happens. No, don't, don't do that. Your I'm soul is what will happen to you. Um, that would be so great. Let's see if I keep my job like he keeps his. <laughs> Well, this yeah. is a, this is a pretty. It's, it's not. It may not be the best episode of the season, but I do like where it ends off and and how everything is on fire and you don't know. Like it's it's another great X Files cliffhanger episode, and it makes me like you said, Nathan. I cannot wait to see the movie and or right. if there's an X season. Although I, I see here in the IMDb trivia, this was originally intended to be the series finale and then they were just going to do movies that's what i thought they were going to do yeah yeah i think that might have been the way to go honestly but there are so many good episodes in season oh no yeah i couldn't yeah you can't not have guys no (laughs) x is fantastic there are so many really good episodes later bruce campbell um, never gets to be on i mean you know right um but now we're jumping ahead yeah But but you're right. It absolutely, uh, Dave. I mean, it totally got my ass in the seat to see the movie after watching this episode. I do remember that going. Okay, well, what's next? Like, how are they going to get past this? Yeah, yeah. The shooter was driving me crazy where I had seen him before, and he was the the lawyer from Jurassic Park. That's where I knew him from. (laughs) Gennaro, who's 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 ripped apart. Right? There's we found it. Yes, over here too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Diana does come back in the next season. Oh, does she? As a, yeah. Um, I don't want to say too much else, but yes, uh, she's, she does return and, uh, plays like, I, I, I think I can't remember how many episodes she's in, but I think she plays a semi-prominent role in the early parts of the season, season six. Mm. I did like when Gibson was supposedly reading Mulder's mind. You're thinking about one of the girls that you brought. Yeah. <laughs> and one of them's thinking about you too. And oh, yeah. Diana says, well, which one? And the, Gibson says, uh, he doesn't want me to say. <laughs> <laughs> you, now, I don't, like, you know what I thought? I think I'd have loved that a couple episodes where just Mulder and this kid going off on some adventures together. <laughs> <laughs> I think a sitcom where David Duchovny and this kid with the magic brain have to do things would be pretty, pretty entertaining. That would be good. Looking for bug people. Yeah, looking for bug people. (laughs) Like the real menace, the giant cockroaches that, you know. um, I did notice when. (laughs) Scully, when she went to visit the lone gunman, the, the whole way that their little office or their apartment looked looked different to me like the lighting looked so cool it had like they red green and blue the girl, the girl was coming to visit maybe that, that's uh, what it was yeah. and i was like is this movie money like why why does their place look so the i don't know just the way it was lit up if well, you go back and look at it when does their series different. start like if if they were thinking this is the end of this series maybe they built sets, oh i think uh, they maybe then- get next see i think it might be a during it's either season six or seven i think when they get their pilot episode that's I another think. show maybe that's seen. why but um yeah, you're right. Like everything here at budget wise was like, oh, it looks ramped up. But and I, the way they interact with, I always like it's always kind of interesting to see how they interact with 
Scully, it's always a little softer than Mulder, right? They're not quite, you know, they kind of try to to downplay. I remember the time when one of the one of the many times she's in the hospital and Frohickey shows up with roses. Do you remember that with a little? <laughs> he's, he's got a suit on. Always, and yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was just last year, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. He's like, yeah. I want a Frohickey in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I love, yeah, I think it's the move. I don't get, is it the movie when, is at some point when Mulder is knocked out or something, he wakes up and they're standing over him and he's like, was it like Scarecrow, the Cowardly Lion and Tin Man? And it's the three, it's the lone gunman looking down on him. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. I think that is the movie. Okay. That's, uh, that is season five. I still contend, I think one of the tightest seasons probably has um, one of the best, uh, Great episodes compared to mediocre and bad episodes. I think there were very few. Um, I think it was only one bad episode, and I think there were only maybe a couple to me that were like, Meh, "This is all right." Overall, I from what I've read, for a lot of people, this is the crest, right? This is the top, and then uh, not that it's a, a a steep downhill slope after this, but gradual but decline. Yeah, gradual decline. But if we stick with this podcast uh miniseries uh we will navigate all of you to the good episodes and there are many <laughs> yeah there are many many i think what we start seeing though is and then starts with season six i do we start we start to see some ones that are like wow this is a clunker like well, why uh i think that's the real issue is that you start to get ones particularly the mythology i think for me the mythology starts to become uh less and less enticing even though there are some really great like Monster of the Week episodes. In fact, I think the Monster of the Weeks actually improve um, starting with this season four because what you do get is that their tone is not dictated by the overall tone of the series. I think when we saw seasons three and four, one of the things I noted is the dark, somber tone of some of those seasons, even though you had some funny episodes, uh, a lot of episodes were dark and gritty, right? Like, you know, and you had a lot of that going on where I here, the tone was all over the place for different episodes. You had many comedy episodes, you had sci-fi episodes and you had uh, episodes that played on things like terrorism and, and, and hostage situations. So a lot of covering a lot of ground uh, again with only 20 episodes, I think that that maybe helped them in a way, you know, sometimes when you have some roadblocks uh, it, it forces you to kind of up your game. And I think they did. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Definitely. Any final thoughts on season five or anything that you guys want to mention before we close this up and I'll mention what we plan to do for the movie. Uh, it's another great season. That's leaving me wanting more. I uh, can't wait. Hey, we're going to, we're going to do some stuff with the movie. So I'm sure we'll all be itching to watch that. And, and uh, if we do, yeah, like Victor was saying, if we do continue with this, which I'm all for, uh, I haven't seen a lot of the later seasons. I think I watched up to season Mid mid season seven, so I'm really looking. A lot of this is going to be new to me. I I can't wait. Hey guys, we made it through five seasons of the X Files. I'm not stopping now. Yeah, we, yeah, we might as well keep going. <laughs> We've got that. We're right. the ball. The ball is rolling now. If everyone's if if everyone here is good, I'm good. We got to be afraid to not see the next seasons. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, so what we will do, what we're going to do, and I, I think that we'll be able to get to this uh, a little bit sooner than we. Uh, I'd like to do this before we get fully into in the fall is uh, we're going to do the movie. And uh, I think, I don't know that Tommy's going to come back, but uh, for, for the, the movie, I think he may be able to join us again for season six, but Shannon, if you're up for it, you are a full fledged member of the X-Files 
podcast now. So, what, who, me? Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the X-Files files. Yes, the X-Files files files. Um, no, but we would love to have you. And what we're going to do next uh, episode of the X-Files podcast is we're going to do the movie, but or I, I, I'm going to do some tests on to make sure that, that we could do it this way. But we're going to record a uh, basically like a commentary track for the film. And uh, what that will mean, we'll, we'll probably, uh, I think the way we'll end up doing it is that all of us will, uh, I, I plan to watch it ahead of time and then sort of uh, have the movie playing in the background. And then uh, we can record the commentary uh, like we would with the film playing. We'll all try to synchronize our watches sort of deal and uh, and do it that way. Uh, unless we can think of a better way. It may be primitive, but uh, I think that'll work. And I'm really looking forward to this. I was like you, Victor. I remember that I was so excited for this uh, movie to come out. It was probably the movie I was most excited to see that summer. Maybe The Truman Show was another one that had really piqued my interest. Mm. Other than that, uh, and there were many, there were, there were there were a lot of duds this summer. There were a lot of good movies too, but The X-Files was, I think, right at the forefront um, yeah. of, of, of of movie I wanted to to see. And because it was like, wow, they've, they've done all this. They've upped the production values. They end up with the X-Files are melted down. You know, you can't just go in and look up. Uh, <laughs> he's hiding in the light anymore. You know, um, uh, now hopefully somebody put him on a disc somewhere, but loved it. Thanks guys so much for joining us. When we do come back, we will have the commentary for the X-Files that you'll be able to sync up with the movie X-Files fight the future, uh, which was released in uh, June of 1998, which means that uh, how, how old is that now? That's this, this is oh, 24 or 25. So short. Yeah, I think it's 24. We're just short of 25 years old, but uh, it's old enough to drink. I know that. So, uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I actually have a, uh, I, I recently bought a copy of the film and I'm looking for on Blu-ray. I think I previously had it on DVD, but um, really looking forward to it. Enjoyed it. And Shannon, thanks for joining the, joining the group. We had a great time. Loved all of your insights on the episodes and uh, everyone that is the X-Files Roundtable podcast signing out. Take care, everyone. Until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> if you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop, a lot of very interesting genre based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at AriesBeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.